There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, the do I. And thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Power Card Hour podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Anthony Merchant, here with you with quite a fun episode right now. I wanted to jump on here before we get things going and let you know that I am talking to Marco DeSantis. You know him, you love him from Sugar Colt, Bad Astronaut, the playing favorites, Popsico, his short stints in the Ataris, in Swingin' Utters, in all of his bands it is uh he is one of those people who i've wanted on this show forever i've been listening to him since i discovered sugar colt in uh, middle school which means i've been listening to marco and uh all all of his bands he's been so many different bands that i'm a fan of for uh, more than half my life now crazy and a uh, someone i've wanted on the show for quite a while and when i saw and really discovered for myself his uh, 90s band popsico and the uh, reissue of their first and only record i uh, thought what better time than to have mon i i've kind of for, again, throughout the years, I've kind of hemmed and hawed and thought of him like, you know, he'd be a great person to have on. I enjoy his uh, appearances on other podcasts and everything. And, uh, you know, just kind of waiting for a good reason to have him on. And this seemed like a good reason. And uh, I got to tell you, as you'll hear right now, I mean, we uh, we get in depth. I mean, we talk Popsico, but way, way more. This was an interview where, honestly, I had a list of questions in front of me, and I don't think I uh, got past, like, one or two. We just talked. We had a conversation, and I had a blast. We basically just get into this, too, so that's why I wanted to jump on, because we just get into it. We don't do an intro or anything. We just get into the conversation, so I just want to jump the episode straight into that. So I wanted to jump on here and let you know that. I really hope you enjoy this. I had such a fun time with him. I mean, this thing is almost two and a half hours long, so I'm not going to jump back on afterwards. I'm just going to let you enjoy my interview with Marco DeSantis right here on the Power Court Hour podcast. I met the guys in Sugar Cult when they played their first show ever as like just like three kids attending the local community college in my hometown in Santa Barbara. And they I think they saw like a flyer in like the campus center that said like needed opening band for, you know, because Superdrag was touring on their head trip and every key record. Nice. And they didn't have their, as you know, if, if you study about that record, basically their label, their major label had like totally pulled the bottom out from under them and just was like, yeah, I don't hear sucked out. I don't hear who sucked out the feeling. There's no single. We're going to, we're going to cut the bait on this, exp- you know, expensive project. Oh, yeah. and so they weren't giving them tour support. So they basically didn't have any money to have an opening band. So they were just going town to town and having like whatever local bands would play for, you know, for like free beer. And, um, and so this guy tim um and you know had assembled this little ramshackle rhythm section with this guy ben davis and this guy aaron older and they just kind of decided to call it sugar cult um which is a whole other story (laughs) because tim lived across the hall from a group he was in a co-ed dorm and he lived across the hall from a group of uh like super butch lesbian women you know like shaved heads like bodybuilders you know like like you know um and they called themselves the sugar cult basically he thought that was they were like you know he became buddies with them and he asked him he's like hey can i can i use that name for my band that i'm forming and they were like sure we stole the name actually and then so the origin of the name sugar cult was actually 
So it's like Tim's across the hall neighbor lesbian gang called the shirt called Sugar Cult. And they had stolen their name from a 60s lesbian or maybe a lesbian or maybe all just all girl hippie commune. I think I don't know if that was the name in the 60s of all girl hippie communes or if it was just one specific hippie commune. But yeah. they called themselves like a, an all girl hippie commune was called a sugar cult. Really? Yeah. I never, I never would have guessed that. I know. And once I heard that story, I was like, okay, cool. That can be that can be our name then. Because at first I was like, that's the dumbest name ever. There's already a great band called Sugar, Bob Mould from Husker Du. There's already Love a great Bob band Mould. called The Cult, you know. And like, why would you have a band called Sugar? That's like the dumbest name. But, you know, as you realize, like most band names are actually kind of dumb. You know, oh my God. So, like, you know, the story behind it, it's cool. Like Iron Maiden, that sounds stupid. But then you <laughs> learn that that's like a medieval torture device. And it's like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Soundgarden. I mean, that's the dumbest name ever. You know, we're gonna make. We're, we're like, it's a bunch of. Can you imagine a bunch of stoners in a rehearsal room? Just all, yo, dude. We're like planting the seeds of inspiration and like watering them with distortion and growing like, growing songs, man. Yeah, dude. Why don't we call our band Soundgarden? You know, it's like the dumbest name, but yet you think of Soundgarden, you're like, they're at. You know. Yeah, that is a good. That is a good point. I would say there's a lot of bands. Who uh, musically, yeah, the music is a lot better than the than the band name is. Yeah, the, so you just music, grow into it. It's like good. your own name. It's like we don't get to choose our name, but then it just becomes who you are. And you're like, all right, that's me. You know, um, no. Motley Crue, what a dumb name. Like it literally sounds like some like elderly person scolding some kids playing in their yard. Like you, you're a little group of rascals and rapscallions you little motley crew like it just does not sound tough or cool or edgy or dangerous or anything that's like their brand it just sounds so quirky anytime you you say if you ever hear anyone use yeah call somebody like a motley bunch of motley crew or like however the context of that it it always sounds old-timey and really like yeah. Not not cool. They might be called the, 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 the you know the naughty little rapscallions, you know, or just some, you know the roustabouts or something like that. Just I don't know. Anyways, I'm blabbing on and on. But the point is, the reason that sugar that sugar cult super drag connection was happening is I was also in another local band um, at the time with uh, the drummer of this band I had previously been in called Popsico that I want to talk about a little bit today. Remind me because we're just tons of it. Yeah, we're we're like releasing the long lost Popsicle record right now. Um, but me and the drummer from Popsicle, Mick Flowers, had like kind of formed this other project with this awesome songwriter called Emil Millar and then Mick's brother, Tom Flowers, who I also play with in the band Bad Astronaut. As you're going to learn, it's a very incestuous, interconnected community that we all come from. Um, but uh, so so you got the lap dancers, which is me. Tom Flowers, Mick Flowers, and Emil Millar. And we're like the other local band that's like, oh yeah, we'll open for Super Drag if we can get some free beer, you know, because we liked Super Drag and we figured it'd be fun to, to open for them. So we're both the local opening bands. And then this, so Lap Dancers was going to go on second and this these kids get up there and I happen to be the only guy in the Lap Dancers wearing like a, like a, a 60s style like suit jacket and like a I had this cool like Playboy tie, like this vintage tie with like the little Playboy bunnies on it. And I just, you know, I used to sort of like dress kind of mod at the time. I was like really into like international noise conspiracy and, and a lot of the like, you know, stuff that was sort of happening um, and just sort of feeling that vibe. 
and um and then i see this these kids get up on stage and they're all wearing suits and the singer just like nails it he reminds me of elvis costello he's got this really cool quirky voice and he's got like you know i don't know he just looked cool and he was playing like a jazz master the other two guys were just kind of whatever but like i got really charmed by this guy tim the singer and he was playing the show like you know like he'd been doing it for years he was super charming on stage he was really confident um he was just just really charismatic and you know at the time i had my own little like local music radio show i would do on sunday nights i was just like the sort of big fish in a small pond in this little santa barbara local music scene and um and so i went up to him afterwards i was like dude you guys were great man you should uh we should exchange numbers you know because i do like a local music show and and he was like dude what's up with your with your sh you know look you know we were kind of like comparing like suit jackets and ties and um sorry my dog's about to start barking but um <laughs> anyway uh long story short we kind of hit it off and got it i got his number and then i just started talking to him and he was like man because at the time i was actually playing bass because i had played bass in the band popsico and i'd started out on guitar when i was a kid but i eventually just graduated to to playing bass there goes my dog and then I wanted to interview the guy from Sugar Cult. And all he did was talk about super drag. And I had to listen to his dog bark. And it was just, it just didn't go very well. I, I got to yeah. ask you, because I did, I did hear you call him Iggy. I mean, is he named after no, it's Iggy? Not, it's Tiki. It's not oh, Iggy. Oh, I heard Iggy. you wrong. I heard Iggy you wrong. Is a pretty good, Iggy would be a pretty cool name for a dog. Man, maybe, maybe next dog. Maybe that's a, that's next. a good name. Um, although, damn, you just reminded me. I'm trying to... Uh, Iggy Pop's playing in LA like next month and I'm like dead set on going. I've seen oh, him yeah. once, but it's like, I'm just on this. I'm, you know, it's just part of my quest as a, as a lifelong rock and roll fan. It's like, I need to see a proper Iggy show and I really want to meet him. Like, I mean, he's getting oh, up yeah. there. So I really want to meet him while he's still, uh, while he's still walking the earth, you know? Oh, absolutely. Um, but he's, never, yeah, he's doing a really cool tour right now. He's got Duff from Guns N' Roses playing bass and Chad from the Chili Peppers playing drums and this other dude named Watt playing guitar. It's going to be like, it's going to sound really good, and, you know. Oh, yeah. No, I would I would definitely. He's he's one I've never seen live. I would absolutely. That's one of those ones where, yeah, if he's near you, I mean, you got to say you saw Iggy Pop live. I mean, yeah, totally. I saw him once. I saw him. He played with the Foo Fighters um, at this festival. And uh, so I was on the side of the stage while he was playing, which was kind of cool to sort of see him up close. And I saw him like sitting down on a chair, like resting before he went on stage. I mean, he's very old, you know, he's kind of crooked. He's he's just hanging on by, by, he's like held together by duct tape at this point. But I think that's part of the beauty of him is he's just gonna, he's gonna go down swinging, you know? Oh yeah, um, no, he's he's one of those ones who might die on stage. That's a guy he's performing till the end, I feel oh, like. Oh yeah, he's, he's like, going, he's, he's definitely going down swinging. Um, but yeah, so eventually Tim and I just like, we just kind of became pals over the phone and he was like, man, it's too bad. I didn't meet you like before I got this other guy playing bass and, and, you know, cause, cause I feel like we just like finish each other's sentences and we just kind of, you know, we were like turning each other on to music and like talking about stuff. You know, those, like, I always say those, like those things you see, um, on, on people's Instagram feeds that say like, I like you because we hate the same things, you know? <laughs> Like we yeah. sort of have that dynamic with each other. We both would like commiserate about stuff we thought was cool or lame. And, um, and you know, it's just one of those things. It was kind of a little bromance. And then it was like, I think we were both thinking the same thing. Like, damn, I wish you didn't already have a bass player. And I was like, damn, I wish I wasn't already in this other band. And then this other band I was playing in just sort of petered out. And I was definitely like, 
I, I mean, I had like, we'll get into it later, but like I had had this band in the early nineties called Popsico that almost pulled it off. Like we made this amazing record and we had this, you know, really great run for a while. And then that band ended sort of tragically because our singer died. And then I had this like sort of wilderness period where I kind of played in a bunch of bands that never really amounted to anything. And I started um, kind of running a, an indie record label with my buddy, Joey Cape, who I would later play in, a, in Bad Astronaut with, Joey Cape being yeah. the lead singer of the band Lagwagon, who are also from our hometown. And Joey was just someone who I'd knew, known from the scene. I mean, he, he was kind of the older kid when we were all growing up and you'd sort of see him around and, you know, just, you know, it's like in a small town, you just, everyone who plays music just knows each other. It's just like, um, Joey had asked me, you know, cause he knew I was kind of the guy that made all the phone calls in, in the bands I was in. And he asked me like, Hey, I, I want to start this label. Would you, would you kind of run it for me? Cause you seem kind of organized and whatever. And I was like, all right, sure. You know? So I, I basically just dove in the deep end and started running this label and then um, we put out the first record we put out. We actually put out a compilation. But Happy um, Meals? What's that? Was it Happy, Happy Meals? Meals? Yeah. Happy yeah. On vinyl. On, on, the label was called My Records. And one of the bands, it's funny because I had started like doing this part-time job, like screen printing T-shirts. And the guy who I was working with was my old friend who I had actually played in a band with when I was in high school. Uh, this guy named Steve Sherlock. And he was like, dude, I've, I've got this new project I'm doing with this guy, Perry, and uh, check it out. And he played me their first demo. And I was like, dude, this is really good. I should play this for Joey and see if he wants to put you on like the compilation or whatever. So basically, long story short, we ended up putting their song on the compilation and then talking about having them be the first band on the label. And we, we you know, Joey wanted to do a, a single with them, like a seven inch and, and I was like, I kind of convinced him. I was like, dude, if we're going to go to all the trouble of like setting up drums and microphones and everything, because Joey's going to produce it, I was like to, to, to go to the hassle of, of recording them for a single, you might as well, you've got everything set up, you might as well just record a full length record. You know, it's actually probably cheaper to press up CDs than to press up vinyl seven inches. And, um, and so we ended up going for it and putting out and making this full length record with this local band called Nerf Herder. Yes. And amazing, then it was completely record. crazy. So this was like after Popsicle and before Sugar Call. I had this weird little moment in time where I was like making phone calls and just hustling like a maniac to try and get this Nerf Herder record off the ground. And we got it like just as a total fluke. We got it on that. We got the song Van Halen on. Uh, we got some station in Northern California in San Francisco to play it. And um, they played it once and the phone never stopped ringing. And so suddenly they were like, it just lit a wildfire. Like my whole life was like, I just went from being some like kid in my underwear, make, in my parents' house, like making phone calls in my teenage bedroom to all of a sudden like getting like limousines picking me up and flying me to New York City and meeting with Clive Davis, the <laughs> like, music industry Jeez. legend and like, helping this, I was basically acting as their manager. And, um, and we got them like this huge major label record deal. Um, and they basically bought them off our label. You know, we ended up getting them like a quarter million dollar record deal. And like literally from the seat of our pants, I mean, Joey was on tour with Lagwagon in Europe. And I'm like, you know, trying to call him because back then we didn't all have iPhones and everything. So it was really hard to get in touch, trying to find him on tour. And I'm like, dude, you got to like, we, we're, we only pressed up like 2000 copies of this. We're going to run out of them. You got to like, 
you know, so he took a loan from his like family and like pressed up a bunch of copies. And then I don't know, it was this crazy runaway train with the Nerf Herder record. And they ended up getting signed to a bigger label. And, um, and so that was this crazy little moment um, after Pops Go and before Sugar Cult. After around that time, I'd started like doing sort of like touring gigs with other bands that already existed. Like the kid Chris Rowe um, moved to town. Yeah, and he start, He had our friend Derek that I'd grown up with in the same neighborhood, Derek Plord, who was the original drummer of Lagwagon. He had had him play on this record because he had gotten signed by Joe Escalani from the Vandals. It started a label called Kung Fu Records. And literally, Chris was the kid who would like go to all the shows. He grew up in like bumfuck middle of nowhere in Indiana on the outskirts of, of uh, you know, I can't remember what city. I think he grew up in. I think it's Florida. Anderson, isn't it? Anderson. Yeah. And I apologize if if Anderson's like some major metropolitan city. I'm calling it like you're like I'm like the obnoxious guy from Southern California. It's fucking bumfuck nowhere, man. Anderson, Indiana. Someone's listening to this going, fuck you, dude. You know, I'm like fifth generation Anderson right now. Anyway, sorry. Respect. You Anderson. angered the entire metropolitan area of, of Anderson. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hi, Anderson. Marco from Sugar Call here. Can we still be friends? Anyway, so um so Chris had like literally would just go to shows and he was just so ambitious. He would make little demos in his um in his like he'd get into his car and like run an extension cord from his house into his car and roll the window up on the extension cord and then have a four track and he would make his, his demos because he was too embarrassed to sing in front of his parents. So he would like park the car as far away from the house as he could get away with, run the extension cord and then make his demos in his car. Um, and then he would take those demos and just any band that would come through, like, you know, he would drive wherever. I know he, Chris Rose, a great story. You should get him on your, on your show. I, you I look, would love to. Yeah. If you look on the back of Dookie, of the original Dookie, um, Green Day record, and there's like Ernie from Sesame Street. I think they yeah, had to take yeah. it off because of legal reasons. I but have the OG the crowd, copy of it. In the crowd, one of the kids in that crowd is Chris Rowe from the Ataris. <laughs> He's got sort of long blonde hair. I, I could show you a picture of it. You'd trip out. Um, he's also in the picture on the cover of an Avail record where there's a, where you can see a crowd. It's kind of fun. Where is he in the Avail record? Oh, my I'll God. I'll show you at some point. I got I to gotta figure yeah, out. I, love, I, I probably own these records. You're t- I mean, I definitely you own You're going to trip out. Chris is like, dude, if it, it, like between me and Chris, we've been, we've, we're like Forrest Gump of music history. It's like we've been he, everywhere. He's never been uh, on this show, but he did pick, and I don't remember what it was because it was years ago, but I'd do Twit picks, and I'd ask like musicians on on Twitter, what song to pick and he picked a Husker Du song and I wish I could remember what one but then he gave me a whole story of uh and I'm forgetting his name but the guy who produced so long Astoria they picked him because he produced all the Husker Du and Sugar stuff and that's the whole oh, reason yeah, that would be Gil Norton I think Gil Norton yeah he yeah. gave me the whole story yeah. like, he gave me this whole rundown on why they picked Gil because I mean obviously he's a huge Husker and just a oh, Bob yeah. Molden general fan as, oh, a, yeah, as I, love, I. I love Chris man when, when when he and I start talking we go for we, we can talk for for miles you know, we just feed off each other, but, um, he's such a rock and roll romantic. I love that about him. I mean, I think, I think it's just one of those things. Like you find people like that and you're like, especially when he became successful, I was just like rooting for him so hard. Cause I'm like, this guy just loves it. And he's, it's such a great story. Cause he went really from like a kid with like zero prospects in life to, you know, someone who's just living the dream, you know, it's pretty awesome. Um, but anyway, so for a little while he moved to town because Derek had played, like I said, Derek had um, basically kind of been hired to play drums on the record. Cause basically 
he he passed out his demo tape to to bands that would come through town and he gave one to joe from the vandals and you know um most of the time when kids and local bands give touring bands their their demo tapes or cds or whatever it might be back then most of the time you know they don't really get listened to you know yeah i mean sometimes they do like we would take we would compile i would i would collect them all and then i would like um put them on our merch table like in like you know maybe like if i got a bunch in on the east coast i'd put them on our merch table in like europe or if i got a bunch in the south i'd put them on our merch table in the pacific northwest you know i'd sort of try to help spread the word at least get get oh, like nice yeah and, and it was kind of cool. idea i knew i was like we're not gonna probably listen to much of this stuff but at least i'm gonna like distribute it and like i, I sort of had a little box on our merch table that would say like free you know like uh, new music you know it's just um, once in a while you'd listen to it and if it was really bad, you'd give it what we used to call the, uh, the CD release party. Oh no. <laughs> is the you know CD release? No, nice but I can only on imagine. The, on the road, just in the van going like 80 miles an hour. You just roll the window down, just <laughs> the CD release party. You know, if it was really bad. Now, sometimes if we were really bored, our singer <laughs> would pick up the phone and like call the number on like the back of the CD oh, God. <laughs> and he'd call them and he would just roast him. He'd be like, what the Fuck, dude! You guys sound just like Blink One Eighty Two. The last thing we need is another band that sounds just like Blink One. Pull it, do better. You gotta fucking work harder. And now I'm just, and then he, he then he'd just be like, "I'm just kidding," and he would like laugh with them and joke with them. But it was it's just you know something to do when you're bored on the road, you know. Um. Anyways, so I'm jumping all over the place. I promise I'll tie this all together. So you have Chris eventually getting a deal with Kung Fu Records because Joe actually listened to this the, the tape and was like, "Oh my God, who are you guys?" His story is great because he called Chris at his home number and Chris thought it was his friend playing a joke. He was like, dude, fuck you, man. You're not Joe from the Vandals, you know? And then he called back. He's like, no, I'm serious. It's Joe from the Vandals and I want to put your record out. This is great. Problem was he had called it the Ataris, but it was basically just him. He was just like a one man band. So he had to like, kind of like create some story like, oh, well, we just lost our drummer and I'm just not sure if like, <laughs> you know, and so Joe was like, okay, well, Derek had just recently been, um, let, you know, parted ways with Lagwagon. So he was around and Joe, and he was a great drummer. So Joe asked Derek if he would go play on the, on this Atari's record that he was going to put out and Derek did it. And then eventually I think Derek moved to Indiana to keep playing with him because he just liked the songs. And then as soon as he got to Indiana, you know, he was like, okay, this is, I can't, I can't hang. Like, I got to get back to California. And so Derek was like, yo, dude, I'll still play in your band, but you got to move to California if you want to keep playing with me. And so Chris was like, okay. <laughs> he just like threw all his stuff in his backpack and just packed up his guitar and just followed Derek to Santa Barbara. And um, I met him the day he got to Santa Barbara. We were at this like, wow. there's this place called Isla Vista, which is kind of the college town next to the UCSB. And they would have these like free shows in this park in IV. And at the time, I remember it was the it was a band called The Other. Do you remember them? No, I don't think I've heard of them actually. Okay, they, they were um, Fat Records had a, a sort of smaller label called Honest Dons. Okay? I've heard of Honest Dons. And yeah. So The Other, I believe, was maybe the first release on Honest Dons, and it was basically all the members of the band RKL. But oh, with, okay. But instead of with the singer Jason singing, it was with their original drummer Bomber playing bass and singing and writing the songs. Really? So it was like really progressive and intricate, crazy kind of like, um, you know, like an extension of RKL, that sort of like really kind of proggy, hardcore punk, right? And yeah. they were great, the other, and they played with another band that was had been recently signed to 
to Honest Don's that was from my hometown as well called the Mad Caddies. Oh, yeah, obviously the Mad Caddies. Right. So the Mad they would Caddies. grow up to be a big, pretty successful band. So you have the other and the Mad Caddies playing the Ivy Park. So we're all just out there because that's just where everyone would hang out. If there was a free show, it was like a no-brainer. It's people hanging out during the day, drinking beer and talking to their friends. And I get this high-strung kid come up to me. He's like, hey, dude, um, I just moved to Santa Barbara today. And uh, my name's Chris. And I heard you're friends with Derek. And I heard you, I heard you play bass. And uh, we just got, we got some tour dates coming up. Would you want to play bass for us? And so I was like, you know, same kind of thing. I was like, all right. <laughs> you know, it was just like, there was no like fancy like auditions or anything like that. Just like, I was like probably a couple beers in and I'm like, yeah, sounds like fun. Let's go. You know, when, when are the tour days? He's like this. I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Let's, let's do it. And so I was like, you know, so basically I joined the Ataris and I got to play in the Ataris for a little while. And again, I was kind of licking my wounds in this wilderness period after Popsico and sort of during my records. So I started playing with the Ataris. And while I was playing in the Ataris, I remember we were in New York City. Um, Derek and I had gone to New York to sort of help promote the Ataris and just hang out during this festival they would have called CMJ. It was like sort of a music <laughs> music industry festival. And our friends, um, this guy, Jesse Mallon, who used to be in a band called Degeneration, he would he owned a bar back then. It was kind of a club called Coney Island High. And he was having a show there with like, it was like, me first in the Gimme Gimme's, I think, headlined, which is like sort of the you know Fat Records super group yeah. with like Fat Mike and and Joey from Lagwagon and Chris who would go on to be in the Foo Fighters and blah blah blah. Anyway, they were playing, and the band that opened for them was the Swing and Utters. And I noticed that the Swing and Utters, when they played, I'd met them before, and I noticed that their guitar player Max was playing bass. And I was like, I went up to him afterwards. I was like, Dude, what's going on? Well, how come you're playing bass? And he's like, Oh, our bass player just left. He's like. He's going to just, you know, he just got his master's degree and he's going to like get a job or whatever. And I was like, you know, again, probably a couple beers in. And I just like borrowed some girls eyeliner and like wrote my number down on a cocktail napkin. And I was like, dude, I'll fucking play bass for you, man. I love your band. Here's my number. Like, and he's like, seriously, I was like, yeah, dude, call me up sometime. I'd love to like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll fill in for you guys until you can find someone or whatever, you know? And he's like, okay. And I just sort of forgot about it. And he kind of probably forgot about it. And so I'm on tour with the Ataris in California, finishing up this tour. I think we were out with No Use for Name, opening for No Use for Name. And uh, we we were like the opening, opening band. So we would like finish our last song and be like, all right, guys, this is our last song. We're the Ataris from Santa Barbara. If anyone has a place for us to stay, hit us up. We'll be hanging out over by the merch. You know, that was like our our shtick pretty much every every show. And we'd hope to find someone where we could like stay at their house do our laundry, you know, ransack their refrigerator. Um, sometimes we couldn't find anyone. We'd have to just sleep in our shitty van or we'd sleep on the stage with sleeping bags, like at the venue we played. We didn't have any money. So so we were just like, you know, I remember we used to coast the van down, down like long, if there was a long grade on a freeway, we would like put the van in neutral. So we would like save it's gas. You know? And just, I mean, we were just making it work, dude. And um. And of course, you know, this was way before the Ataris had like the big hit on the radio. This was like on their first record anywhere, anywhere but here. And um, I'll tell you, like, this is kind of dark, but like when I was in Popsico, one of the reasons that band um, kind of like sadly came to an end was because our singer had become strung out. He had picked up a drug habit. And um, so I had gone through that where I'd been like, man, we're like so close. We're like 
playing shows with Green Day and Weezer and all these things are happening. And we're getting looked at by record companies. And then our singers just going worse down the drain in, in drug addiction. It's getting worse and worse and worse. And eventually led to him dying in a car accident. So I had this real chip on my shoulder about, about like drug addicts. You know, I was just like, I, you know, I'd seen so many friends in my hometown go down that road. Heroin was really big at the time in the nineties, you know, with Nirvana and all this stuff that the sort of culture was like, it was like coffee, heroin, flannels, you know, and <laughs> you know, that was just in the air. It was like, just, so it was really hard to avoid if you're the kind of person that was susceptible to, to picking that kind of a thing up. And, um, and unfortunately, Derek, who I'd grown up with, who had, like I said, had been playing in Lagwagon, he had unfortunately gotten um, addicted to to the same thing. So I'm in, and 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 here's someone I've known. I've known Derek since we were like the same kids in the in a neighborhood. We started our first band together. You know, I taught him how to play yes. bass so he could be the bass player in my original punk band that I had called Illiterate. And then, like, you know, he's just one of those kids. Like, you teach him how to play bass so he can play with you. And within two weeks, he's better than you at guitar and bass and better than your drummer at drums and is already like learning how to write songs. You're just like, he's one of those guys. Like, he's a fucking genius, you know? Sad truth is the two people I know that died from heroin were both two of the most brilliant, like literally certifiable geniuses I've ever known. Derek from Lagwagon and Keith from Popsico. So you want to believe that that only happens to like the the fuck up, you know, but which wouldn't make it any, any sweeter. But it happens to like the brilliant, multi-talented, like charismatic, good-looking, in- intelligent, intellectual, you know, amazing people, which sucks. You know, it's, it's such a loss. You know, Kurt Cobain. There you go. Right. So it's so real. Jimi Hendrix. You know, it, it happens to the it happens to the best of the best. Um, but anyway, so Derek was, you know, I, while I was touring with the Ataris, I just sort of had this like, oh, man, I can't. I, this is this is so hard. It's hard on two levels. It's reminding me of, of Popsico and Keith. It's and it's also just heartbreaking to see this like kid who was like the all star kid in our neighborhood. Like he was better than everybody at skateboarding, better than anybody at talking to girls, better than anybody at writing, better than anybody at, you know, playing music like to see him just like kind of suffering from that, from that disease. I I was like, I started sleeping with one eye open. I was like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Like the band wasn't, the band was struggling. Chris was insanely talented, but he was super young. He was like 19. He's super immature. You know, always ran out of money. Always like, you know, very irresponsible. He like loses guitar and loses shoes. You know, just, I was like parenting him. You know, I was like, I can't, I can't, I can't like, supervise a drug addict and try to be the like, you know, and try to be the like older brother to a, to a kid who's like just straight off the turnip truck, you know? And so I started looking for other things. I was like, I was definitely, sorry. Yeah. You're getting it. You're getting it all. Now the male person's here. You're getting the the day (laughs) in the life here. I should have just gone into my studio. Um, anyway, man. Uh, so, so I was kind of thinking like, you know, nothing about this. I already felt kind of weird because I was like filling in in a band that already had a record. It's not like I played on the record or made up the songs. I was like, I just was like, I don't know if this is it. I was searching for for what my next move was going to be. And I, I wanted it to work. I liked being in the Ataris. I loved, you know, playing with those guys. And the tours we were on were fun. We got to tour with MXPX and the Vandals and 
Black Wagon and No Use for a Name. We did some fun, fun shows, but it was like, I was like, this is, this is kind of a road to nowhere. You know, I remember the van broke down and no one had any money. So I had to put it on my credit card. And so I made Chris like sign the name of the van over to me. So I would like at least like, have some collateral to know that they would pay me back. And during that time we were playing a show and we were about 45 minutes away from my parents' house in Santa Barbara. So I was like, you guys, instead of sleeping on the floor or sleeping in some random person's house, let's just drive 45 minutes to my parents' house. And like, we can have like a nice comfortable, you know, we can take showers, we can do our laundry. My mom will make us breakfast. <laughs> like we'll, we'll have like a nice comfortable time and, uh, and just kind of, you know, refresh ourselves till we get to the next show. And I, so while I was at home, this is way, this is dating myself here. Cause this is so long ago. I literally had like an answering machine that I would have to like call, you know, kids before you had voicemail on your iPhones, you had to call your answering machine, which had a little micro cassette thing in it. And you had to like check your messages. So I get home and I like check my messages and it's just like, Hey Marco, this is Max from the swing and utters. Um, I just found your number and just uh, remember following up on what we talked about in New York, you know, like a month ago, would you, uh, are you still down to go to, uh, to go on tour with us as our bass player? And I'd like, I was like, Oh shit. I forgot about that. <laughs> you know? And he's like, he's like, no, no pressure, but we do leave in like 10 days. So uh, let me know if you're down. Cause we'd love to have you. And so I call him back and I'm like, uh, yeah, dude, what's up? Like, what songs should I learn? And he's like, he told me the songs to learn and actually he needed like the rest of the guys in his band had never met me before. So they were like skeptical as to whether I could even like handle it, you know? So he's like, um, do you have like, any sample of a recording you've ever played on that you can like send us so I can just like, you know, kind of like calm the other guys in the band that you're going to be okay. And so I actually had a copy of Popsicles CD that we nice. put out, and I like just dropped that in the mail and threw and sent it to him. And I spent the rest of the Atari's tour, like in the van with a little mini acoustic guitar, just like listening with like a CD disc man, listening to the swing and utters, you know, music and learning and figuring out their songs, making myself little cheat sheets. And um, I, you know, just as luck would have it, the Atari's tour ended. The last show of the tour was in San Francisco because it was because we were touring with no use for name and they're from up there. So it would naturally end there. And so basically we were going to play that show and to get in the van the next day and drive all the way back to Santa Barbara, which is where we lived. But instead I was like, this is kind of perfect. It ends in San Francisco three days before the swing and utters leave for Europe. So I literally just had the Ataris, like I got an address from Max and I had the Ataris drop me off in like this super dangerous neighborhood, in like the mission <laughs> in San Francisco with my base and like my suitcase. And I was just like, all right. See you guys later. <laughs> you know? And I just like left the band and like knocked on some door and some girl who's like covered in tattoos answered. And I was like, Hey, what's up? I'm, you know, here to is Max here. And she's like, Oh, I don't know. Is Max here. You know, they're like, no, he's at someone's house. I'm like, Oh, okay. And they're like, I guess you can come in. I'm like, okay, thanks. It was so awkward. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? She's like in some random punk rock house in San Francisco with my gear. And, uh, and then eventually Max gets back and, and I'm like, yo, dude, what's up? Like, so we're going to do this. And he's like, yeah, here's the thing, man. Um, about the whole rehearsal thing, like our drummers, like want to spend time with his girlfriend before we leave. So we're probably not going to rehearse tonight after all. So we just ended up getting drunk and hanging out. <laughs> 
And then the next night, he's like, we're going to rehearse the next night, though. Don't worry. The next night comes around. He's like, oh, yeah. Um, dude, I think our guitar player's got something going on with his buddies. So, like, I guess we're probably not going to rehearse tonight. And I'm like, okay. So that leaves us one more night. And so on the last night before we left, we got together and rehearsed. And I like barely, we barely ran the set like once. And I had like ramshackle cheat, cheat sheets I had like, you know, written out for the, for like 20 songs or something, you know, maybe more, maybe Jesus. like 25 songs. And they're all super short songs and they're somewhat similar. So it's really easy to get them mixed up. And like, I, so I basically got to run the songs with them like once or twice, maybe. Right. And like maybe Darius would help me like, oh, dude, you're just doing that, that one thing, you know. And so and then it was on my own and they were on a separate flight than me. So like basically the next day it was like they're gone to like flying to Berlin. And then I'm on a separate flight just by myself. And I spent the whole flight listening to their CD and just like going over it in my head. And then we get there. And that night we had a gig sold out show with we were actually touring with No Use for Name, which is another story I'll tell you about. <laughs> And it was a sold out show in Berlin and it was just crazy people, you know, just, and I barely knew the songs and I'm up there just playing to this like, you know, 300 kids just going crazy. And I'm like, I have like my little like yellow, like legal pad with like the songs with like a Sharpie with little like reminders and notes and I'm trying to follow it. And it was just a total, it was a total exercise in just like using the force. You just had to kind of like, you know, go for it. And just hope Great it worked you. out. It worked out. We played 48 shows in 50 days. Holy shit. So it was, I mean, it was, and we toured in a bus, which was amazing. I had never even set foot in a bus, but it was, it wasn't a fancy tour bus, but in Europe, it just made more sense because, you know, we, we, we covered a lot of ground. We went all over Europe and, and the UK, even Eastern Europe. We played in Poland, played in Prague. It was awesome. But it was basically our band. So it was, it was me and the Swing and Utters with no use for name and then kind of sharing a lot of crew. So it was just all of us. It was just like the, it was so much fun, man. It was just like, and we're all really good friends. Like my, um, this is name droppy, but my, uh, uh, friend from growing up, remember I told you I'd played in a band with a drummer of Nerf Herder. So yeah. that band was a band in high school called lost kittens. And the guitar player of that band was Chris Shiflett. Oh, so, nice. who's now, you know, in the rock and roll hall of fame, Foo Fighters yeah. guy. But back then he was in no use for name as their guitar player. So Chris and I had played in a band all through high school together, moved to LA together to try to like pull it off. Like this was before Popsico. And then we eventually went our separate ways. He did his thing. I did my thing. And here we are on tour in Europe. Both of us, our first time ever in Europe together on tour. And we're like sharing a bus and we're just like, it was the, like, we still all talk about it today. We're like, dude, we've all toured for like 25 years since then. And like that tour is like, will was like burned in our hearts as far as like just such an amazing moment. We'll never forget. So we just had so much fun and it was just like every night was just a raging party. But anyways, I get home from that and I was like, still kind of soul searching. I'm like, well, the Ataris was cool. Swinging Utters is cool, but they're already such an established band. I don't really feel like being the like, you know, I don't really feel like being the like hired gun in someone else's band, you know, and, and just from hanging out with them internally, it felt like they were kind of on their last legs. It felt like they had sort of run their course. They were like, yeah, dude, we're making this other record. And then we're, we're going to see what happens. Like all the guys were working day jobs to try and like, they certainly weren't making money, you know, they weren't mm -hmm. like, and I just felt like I'm not going to uproot myself from Santa Barbara and move all the way to San Francisco just to play in a band that seems to be like, 
falling apart, you know, even though I yeah, love the band and I love the guys. So I was just like, you know, and by the way, they had already um, promised two other guys that they could play bass on the on the record they were about to make. So I didn't even have that. I was like, well, if I'm not going to get to play on the new record and I'm going to it's just it just didn't seem like I was like, this was fun. Let's just call it what it was. I think I played like one more show with them in San Francisco. And then I was like, OK, guys, this is this is fun, but I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to do something else. And then the same thing happened. Nerf Herder, about a year later, ironically, because I had a connection with them from helping them. They had needed a bass player to fill in. And I jumped in Nerf Herder for a while to go to Europe. We had this gig in Europe where we did two weeks in Paris, two weeks in Madrid. Super fun. And of course, we were all really good friends. So that was super fun. Um, and then it was the same thing where like I was enjoying playing with them and I did some shows with them. But then I just had this moment where I was like, you know, I was also doing that band, the lap dancers around the same time. And I was just kind of like thinking to myself, how much longer am I going to do this, man? I've been doing this shit since I was like 13 years old. And I've had these near close things like Popsico that almost got there. Lost Kittens even got like pretty popular. And, and you know, that I've played in some of these bands. And I just was sort of thinking, I was like, I don't know, maybe I think I verbalized it. I was like, maybe I'm just done. Maybe, maybe I'm just trying too hard. Maybe I should just like stop doing this. You know, it's just like, it's, I don't even know if it's that fun anymore. It just seems like it's just a constant hustle. And, and I just felt like it was this moment where I was just sort of having this like existential crisis, just like, I don't know, what the hell am I doing? You know, nothing seems to be panning out. And, and around that time is when, like literally practically right when I verbalized that I was going to quit playing music, like quit trying to play music professionally is when I met Tim. Good time. So I was like, you know, and then he was like, dude, I wish I would have met you because we already have a bass player. And then one day he calls me up. He's like, Hey, just um, random question. Do you know how to play guitar? And I was like, yeah, I started out on guitar. I sort of know how to play guitar. And he's like, well, cause I'm just thinking we should be a four piece, you know, and, you know, they had been doing some gigs around town as a three piece. And, and he just was like, I can't handle playing guitar parts while I'm singing. So, like, would you want to try playing? And I was like, totally, man. That sounds like fun. Again, I can't quit music if I try. So <laughs> I justified to myself. I was like, well, I'm not getting back in the game because, I mean, I'm just doing this to just like, you know, it's just going to be fun to try to play guitar and like sort of like it would give me an excuse to like hang out with some of these guys. And, and I like their songs and I like, I, I get along with them and it'll be fun for me to like play guitar, like play electric guitar rather than just sitting on my bed with an acoustic or whatever. So I, I went into it with like zero expectations that it would go anywhere. Cause the band was like nothing. I mean, sugar cult was nothing. It was just a local shitty little local band playing like the dive bar. And um, so I just got in there with them and then it was so weird. It's like, it's like everything I had been hoping and wishing for in other bands I had been in that never really went anywhere. Like these guys had, they had this like incredible, like work ethic. Like I was never the guy who was like, let's go home early. I was always a guy, Hey, you want to run the set one more time? And then other guys would be like, dude, I'm tired. I'm out, you know? And, and I would be like, Oh, come on, let's work on something new. Let's. And these guys had that thing. Like they were like, let's keep going. I'm not tired. Are you tired? You know? And they had this like military discipline, like the drummer would record us practicing and then we'd go outside and take a break, but listen to the recording and like take notes and be like, dude, you're fucking up that one part. What's that part? And then we drill that part like a hundred times till we got it right. None of us were very good at music, but we just like outworked everybody else. We were like, we will drill this shit like a hundred times 
you know, drill the verse a hundred times, drill the chorus a hundred times, drill the little guitar part a hundred times, and then snap it all together and play it. And it's going to sound pretty good. Now let's work on what we're going to do between the songs. Now let's, and so we really had this, what are we going to wear? How is the flyer going to look? What's our, you know, and we, so we, we cared about, it was like this weird dynamic in Sugar Cult in the early days where we had this like internal comp, like competition, like where we would like get to practice that night and be like, I made a phone call for the band to try to get, get a gig. And the other guy would be like, oh yeah, well I made stickers. And the other guy would be like, well, I wrote a new part. And you know, like we just had this, like who wants this more, you know, like healthy competition. And then things just like started really slow, but then they started to catch fire. And then before you knew it, we were like becoming like the biggest band in our hometown. And then we'd start going down to LA and it started happening there. And for me, it reminded me of my previous band, Popsico, because we had done the same thing. We'd started here and then we became pretty big, you know. Um, and so I was like, I had that feeling where I was like, I've seen this movie before. So this time I want to do it right, you know, and I'm not going to I'm, I'm going to make sure we like, you know, don't make some of the same mistakes or whatever. And I'm really like emboldened me to go for it, because especially since I had that sort of attitude where I was like, I'm already I'm already making peace with being done with my whole struggle of going for it. So like, this is just sort of like the shot clock, hail Mary, see what happens, you know, but kind of nothing to lose. So I might as well just like empty the tank and go for it yeah. one last time. And, um, but, but Tim and the bass player, Aaron were a couple years younger and that was their first band ever. They had never really oh, been really? in a band before. So, um, so we had the drummer Ben had been in a band before he'd sort of quit music already and like just focused on becoming like he was trying to build his own recording studio and be an engineer. And that's how he got in the band with Tim because Tim had hired him to record his Tim's demos and then um, found out that he could play drums. So he asked Ben if Ben would play drums on the demos since he was recording him anyway. And then from that, he was like, dude, you should just be our drummer. You know, and the funny thing is Tim had started out on drums when he was in high school and he still had his drum kit, but he owed Ben a bunch of money because he like said, hey, I'll pay you to like record me. But then he like didn't have the money to pay him. So basically he said, how about this? I'll just give you my drum set <laughs> as like pay. And Ben was like, OK, cool. <laughs> you know, and so he got a drum kit and then they started playing together. And that's basically how Sugar Cult started. You know, wow. it was just him with some songs, hired Ben to record them, ran out of money. So he had to give Ben his drum kit. And then because Ben had a drum kit and could play drums, Ben played drums. And then they just like, I think Aaron was the kid who sat next to him in class and Tim would cheat off of his, um his, you know, whatever, like paper, you know, his test or whatever. Yeah. And so eventually he asked Aaron to play bass. And then again, he found me at that sh super drag show and asked me eventually if, if um, same thing, I, I was on a trip road trip. And I get a voicemail saying, hey, dude, give me a call. I have a question for you. And I call him and he's like, would you want to play guitar? And that's kind of how it came together. And then we just kept going. And next two years later, we got a record deal, got on the Warp Tour, um, got a song on the radio. And it was just like really for about 10 years, it was like a nonstop ascent. And it was pretty amazing for me because I like I said, before Sugar Cult, I had <laughs> prematurely sort of declared my retirement you know and so it's it really is that day is darkest before the dawn story where you're like you know you never you never know you know 
it's wild too. I mean, like you brought up, like to think of that, like I mean, because like we're just talking about all these all these bands you've been in, and that you know, Sugar Colt's far from your first time around. But then having two other guys who that's their first band, you guys huge. I mean, that's a that's a crazy first band to be in. So it's so funny to like see your story and then be in all these bands and then blow up with Sugar Colt and then a couple of those guys like, oh yeah, it's just our first band. And then you do all these things with it, like you know kind of an anomaly too i don't feel like most people's first bands can say they got to do a lot of those things well i think it's a i think most bands having been in so many bands i think the magic of a band is and this sounds so trite and kind of cliche but like i think what makes a band magic is that a band is usually bigger than the sum of its parts it's this weird chemistry thing that happens it's not just here's some songs and here's someone who could play bass and someone who could play drums and someone who could, you know, it's this, it's all that weird, like kind of undefinable some things that sort of just, just happen, you know, and it makes yeah. it like, you know, I mean, it's like, it's like a relationship. You don't just go, you're, you know, that's a man, that's a woman. They both, that thing fits in that thing. Great. Now they're going to get along. It's like any guy and any girl can have sex but not any guy and any girl can be in love, you know, and, and have really? and have a rapport and have a relationship and be able to handle, you know, all the twists and turns. So it really is like, it's not just any old person who, who has opposable thumbs can play bass and like learn the parts. It's like, it needs to be the right person, the right amount of tension, the right amount of, of sort of, you know, give and rock and roll and the whole thing. And, it, and then when it works, it works, but it doesn't usually work forever. That's what's so extraordinary about bands like the Rolling Stones, where you're like, you go see them play just to like say you saw the Rolling Stones, and then you see them and they blow your fucking mind. You know, like you would be happy to just see them be alive and hear the songs be sort of played, but they like deliver and it's like transcendent. You're like, holy shit, it's like fucking spiritual. You know, that's why I'm going to see Iggy Pop. It's like, Yes. You, you know, you you just be happy to know you were in the same room as the guy who basically inadvertently invented punk rock. But then you also get to see him and you go, oh, no wonder, you know, no wonder he gets to be Iggy Pop. No wonder he's so like, very rarely are you disappointed when you see these like so-called legends. Yeah, I saw David Bowie once and it was like, holy shit, like he it blows your mind. It blows your mind. So. Anyway, I'm not putting sugar cult in the same level as that, but I do think that part of our chemistry was that we had someone like me who had been in a few bands before and had that perspective. I had had even been on tour before. So I had to like, Hey guys, I know what's, I sort of know how this works on a micro professional way. Um, I had run my own label before, you know, I, I definitely had some industry contacts and some experience, but then we had our drummer who was just kind of a music guy. He was like an engineer. He was a multi-instrumentalist and he had already kind of made peace with like, okay, well, I used to play in bands, but now I'm just going to do this. So he wasn't like trying too hard. He was just like, I'll play drums, but I'm like this, you know, this isn't like my dream, you know, I'm trying to go for here. I'll just do this because I'm in a boring local small town and it's something to do. But then you had our singer, Tim, who had that still like childish, like fantasy of like, dude, I, I, it would be so fun to be a rock and roll star, you know, like just like the way you're a kid with on standing on your bed with your tennis racket, like, you know, playing along to a, to, to kiss or something like that. So he had that sort of like exuberance and excitement about it. And our bass player, Aaron was 
you know, he brought his own skill set. You know, he was actually probably the only guy in our band who was a really accomplished musician. Like he had been like tr classically trained in opera when he was a kid and oh, he wow. knew all the harmony and theory. And so it was like really good to have someone like that in the band because we would just be playing all this chaos. And then we'd look at him and he'd be like, mm, I don't think you can do that at the same time as that, bro. You know, and you'd be like, are you sure? And he'd be like, well, here's why. So like it was good to have one guy in the band to sort of like be that guy. and um. He could, you know, he could sing. his harmonies were really key for our for our band. But anyway, the point I'm making is having two guys that had never been in a band. So they didn't have that all that baggage and experience. And then having two guys that had some professional experience. So me and Ben were like a couple years older than Tim and Aaron. It reminded me of and this is obnoxious of me to put ourselves even in the same sentence as as Led Zeppelin. But it kind of reminded me of when I was a kid, I read that book, Hammer of the Gods, which is the story of Led Zeppelin. It's a great book. Okay, yeah. um, and when you learn about Led Zeppelin, you, you, you remember that Jimmy Page, the guitar player, and John Paul Jones, the bass player, were like accomplished. Like Jimmy Page had been in the Yardbirds. John Paul Jones had been like the, the like first call session bass player in, in the London scene and throughout the 60s. Like he played on tons of, of records. So you have John Paul Jones and Jimmy Page who were like highly decorated veterans of the London blues scene. And then you have John Bonham and Robert Plant who were like these two like hippy dippy kids from like the Northern um, country that was like, you know, they, they grew up in like, you know, so it's like the equivalent of like, you got two city guys that were like accomplished and experienced. And then two guys from the countryside that were like younger and they just had no idea what was going on. They joined forces together and that's Led Zeppelin. So I always thought that similar dynamic happened with Sugar Cult. You have like two guys that had like the young sort of innocence and then two guys that had a little bit of experience. You put those things together and you get Sugar Cult. So basically Sugar Cult and Led Zeppelin are the same thing. <laughs> so basically Sugar Cult wrote Stairway to Heaven. No, I'm just joking. That hey, is basically, I, I, I mean. See what I did yeah. there? Yeah. Basically, yeah, you are. You yeah, are. I mean, uh, basically, I'm Jimmy Page. Yeah, that's. We're the Led story. Zeppelin of the, two th of the, of the 21st century. Sugar Cult century. the Led Zeppelin. <laughs> of pop punk okay yes. this is, I, I feel like that's going on a t-shirt feel like that needs to be on there i yeah, that's it i mean i love it man because like you you have i mean like you're just going through i mean it's insane the amount of bands you've played through throughout the years and i mean all of that too because I, I mean i want to talk some popsicle with you and like again going where like sure cold is you know where i jump on with you i i mean in the in the early 2000s and stuff i mean seeing you guys watching fuse and seeing the videos and you're getting into you that way and then getting into Bad Astronaut, getting into the Ataris, finding out you were in the Atari and stuff like that. But Popsico, I'm just learning now, but like this rich history you had, I think a lot of people who might look at Sugar Colt, maybe they don't assume it's your first band, but they might think of it like, like they don't realize you have this huge history long before Sugar Colt. You know what I mean? Like they think of you as Sugar Colt, but shit, you have this really long, there's a big journey to get to Sugar Colt before you even get to that. Well, Anthony, you know, it's it's hard when you uh, when you're so goddamn handsome and you look so young. You know, people assume that Sugar Cult was my first band and I was just a little 16 year old kid, you know. But yeah, no, it's it's I think that the funny thing is I just started really early, you know, and so it's weird. It's like I, I got a really early start, but then I turned out to be a late bloomer. So, so what that ha what happens by doing by virtue of that is you have this enormous like 
ramp that leads up. Like I said, like right around the time, like I was kind of coming to my senses in my young adulthood. I'm like, you know what? This is, this has been great, but I got to fucking get real here and maybe like, you know, get a haircut and get a real job. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, but then sugar cult came along. It was like, Hey, I'm, I'm still young enough to do this. Let's do this. Right. And honestly, I just feel like I'm just kind of a lifer, you know, it's like, it's, it's just something I've always, it's never stopped being fun to put, to play music with people and make up songs. I've cooled off in the last few years. I've had some other, I did a side project with, with uh, two of the guys from Popsico and with Joey Cape and with the guy um, from uh, my earlier band with Steve from Nerfurter and Chris from the Foo Fighters called Lost Kittens. So with Luke Tierney, who was the singer of that band. So we all got together and did this sort of like Santa Barbara all-star band called the Playing Favorites. We made a record. You know what? Can I can I just tell you right now when I asked people, I told people they're on the band, I had a friend ask when the greatest supergroup of all time was going to release a follow-up. Oh, to exactly the <laughs> so we have yeah. people who are very much fans of the playing favorites oh, listening awesome. to this. i never hear anybody talk about the playing favorites and i'm i'm super joey cobra musician joey cobra did he fucking loves your band oh dude thank you yay well i'm, I'm we it's it, it's like it's it's bittersweet because it's like we love the it was such a fun project to do that record we literally made that entire record in a week while Sugar Cult was making doing the drum tracks for the, for our third record, Lights Out. I snuck away because I hate tracking drums. Like when they're in there tracking drums, you're just it's like hell. Just listening to a snare, you know, a million times. Just you don't you don't like EQing snare tones and getting oh like, like for yeah, hours and hours. I was like, hey guys, I just gotta uh, go over there. With the, guy from the place and the thing i'll just be right back you know so i would just like kind of like melt away and i mean i didn't need to be there for anything anyway um so i just like snuck away and me and my friends got together at the studio and we were like here's the project everyone's going to bring a couple songs that they're not using in their other bands and um we're going to just do like three songs a day so i would like show you how the song goes play it for you once and you'd be like cool and then we'd jam it one time and record it and then like maybe you'd say hey dude can we like do that part like two less times or maybe add on this little cool idea that I just, this little riff we'd be like, Oh yeah, sure. Let's go for it. And then we would literally record it for keeps. And then we'd be <laughs> moving on. Then I'd be like, okay, what's your song? And you'd show me something. And we all like, and then maybe I would like switch to guitar or switch to bass or the, you know, someone else would, you know, so it was like just everyone just grabbing instruments. Like it wasn't like planned out. It was, you know what I mean? And um, super fun. So we did that whole record in like a week of playing favorites. Hopefully we'll make another one someday. You know, but uh, but anyway, so I've done, you know, some things like that and, you know, done some other bad astronaut stuff through the years. Um, but, you know, Sugar Cult just slowly kind of faded away uh, after our third record. We just kind of went on hiatus because we were all doing different projects. Um, our bass player had started another project that actually became really big called Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Oh shit! I don't think I realized he was connected with that. Yeah, no one realizes that. But our bass player Aaron had like you know accumulated studio gear, and he had his uh, roommate, which was this guy he had grown up playing music with. You know, they never really had a band, but they would just always like you know teach each other how to record, and they were just like bosom buddies, like just hung out, did everything together, learned music together. This guy Nico, and um. So they were, they had this like kind of like musician house where it was just a bunch of like artsy weirdos hanging out and just like people smoking weed and recording, you know, doing projects together, you know, just classic, like 
artist bachelor pad. Well, we were, the rest of us were all like coupled up and like kind of more domesticated. Aaron was like living the artist life, you know, it was just like, he'd get home from tour and he'd just be like, you know, hold up at some hotel for a while, hanging out with Kelly Osborne, you know, and like going to all these lavish parties, hanging out with Paris Hilton. Like Aaron was just that guy. And, um, and so he knew all these people in town and him and his buddy had all this gear and they'd start just like, Hey, you should come over to our house and record. And there's this, this guy named Alex who had been in a, a band. We all like had a huge crush on called I'm a robot that made this amazing record. If you ever check out it's I am a robot, check out that record. It's like a lost classic. Someone needs to do that. Yeah, record got it. me high on that one, on that one. So good. Um, and the bass player that was, I believe, Justin Meldal Johnson, who would go on to play with Beck, um, guy with sure. a big afro. You see him. He's like a big record producer. He's produced Paramore now. He's produced a bunch of stuff. But he was in that band. The drummer was this other guy, Joey Waronker, who was a, you know, who also played with Beck. Basically, it was like a bunch of people from the sort of L.A. artsy Beck universe. And so the singer Alex wanted to do a, a different project, and so he started recording it with Aaron and Nico. And they started working on this thing and they didn't have a name. It was just always like we'd be on tour and I'd be talking to Aaron and be like, yeah, we're working on this record, you know, and Alex would come over and, and it's kind of just a vibe and we're just doing this thing. And we'd always kind of tease them about it. Cause they were all just such like, just, they were all a little bit irresponsible and just sort of artsy and just kind of dreamers, you know, which is part of the reason, you know, just very endearing quality. You know, Aaron was certainly not the guy that would like, get up early and like make phone calls. He was not hustling at all. He was like this guy sleeping in, you know? And so we were all sort of like dismissive and like you know, lovingly dismissive. We'd be like, dude, we, we called it Chinese democracy. <laughs> we're like, how's Chinese democracy coming along, bro? You know? Come out eventually. Yeah, exactly. Like the record you're always working on, but you're never going to actually put out. And, um, and then he just like, eventually, they finished it and he played it for us. And we were like, dude, this is fucking great. This is like a Beatles record or something. This is a fucking vibe. Like, holy shit, you made this? He's like, yeah, I don't know what we're going to do with it. And then apparently like the actor Heath Ledger had, had been in their little friend group and hanging with them and was like, you know, I don't know if he was like, you know, had a couple drinks or whatever, but he was like, dude, I'm going to, I'm going to put this out, man. I'm going to start a label and put it out. And he was going to put it out. But then unfortunately he passed away, you know, Heath Ledger from the actor. Yeah. And so then they were like, well, we've got this record and he'd given them a little bit of momentum. Like, you know, I, I think just knowing that he wanted to like get behind it and like put it out, gave them the sort of like, Hey, let's just actually do this. And they, they started playing some shows around town. Their shows were super fun. Uh, you know, singers, a great front man. And uh, they had like 11 or 12 people because they just had this like revolving door of like people coming in and playing on the record. So when they started playing shows, it was like 12 people on stage, you know, playing. Jeez. And it was like this real like almost kind of like hippie ish. Like I called it like hippie hipster. It was like hipsters, but like they're all like, you know, uh, growing out beards. And like it was just it was a weird little moment. And they started playing shows and I'd go to the shows in, in LA just to support Aaron. And it was so good. And the guitar player, his buddy Nico was a great guitar player. This girl Jade who sang and the guy Alex. And they, they started kind of like blowing up in, in the local scene in LA. And then before you knew it, they were starting to like, their record came out. That song um, Home became like a big smash with a whistling and all that. Yeah, that thing's Aaron, massive. Aaron produced and co-wrote that song. Wow. And um, 
And they started touring around and they would like be like the festival band, like wherever they would play, it would be like, everyone's got to go see Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. So we were like, at Sugar Cult, we were kind of like slowing down. We're like, let's let Aaron do his thing. You know, I was working on another project. Tim started to um, get into producing records for other artists. And this band we had met on tour, there were a local band in Utah called the Neon Trees. Oh, God, more. Yeah. And he kept in touch with them and he had worked on a song with them. And that song ended up helping them get a record deal. The song Animal. He had co-written that song with their singer, Tyler. And then um, he he basically like, you know, the label, they got signed to a major label and they were like, "Okay, we want to get a big name producer and blah, blah, blah. They were trying to get all these big guys. But the band was like, dude, we we don't like any of these guys. We want to work with this guy from Sugar Cult. We want to work with this guy, Tim. And they were like. Tim, what's he produced? And they're like, nothing. And the label was like, I don't know. You know, we're making a big investment here. I don't want the guy from Sugar Cult to produce your record. You know, like, who's he? You know, like, and somehow they convinced him to let Tim take a crack at it. And Tim just crushed it. And he produced that first Neon Trees record, which had the like song Animal. And I mean, became a big giant hit. So then Tim was like off to the races. And um, actually, weird thing because i just mentioned i'm a robot justin meldall johnson had produced the second neon trees record but the band uh the label said why don't we get tim to produce one song just to just to sort of like since you know he because the band wanted to get more like hey let's try out justin and make it a little more artsy and then tim produced co-wrote and produced one song for the second neon trees record that was produced by justin and that one song was everybody talks (laughs) So the There's one song Tim produced was the song. one song that was the big hit, right? So now Tim's got like two big hits. So now the phone's just ringing off the hook and, and it's like, hey, do you want to do some Sugar Cold stuff? He's like, uh, I don't know, man. I'm producing a lot of records right now. And this other band from the Midwest comes to him from bumfuck nowhere, from Ohio or something. No, um, from Anderson. Comes to him called Walk the Moon. And Jesus they have God. him produce their second record, which yields the song Shut Up and Dance. <laughs> so suddenly God. our little singer Tim is like the most like in demand producer in the game. And as far as like, okay, neon trees, everybody talks animals, shut up and dance by walk the moon. And it was just like one thing after another getting hit up to the point where now he's produced like songs, the last couple songs by blink 182. He co-wrote and produced. If you look on the latest Jeez. on that Weezer record, he co-wrote and produced a couple songs on that one. Um, so he's just become like this super successful producer right now. He's working with the regrets, that band of regrets. Yeah. Um, He's, he's done all these things. So, so, you know, a lot of people are like, why isn't Sugar Cult taking part in this whole, like when we were young festival kind of emo night, like sort of revival of the scene. And, you know, honestly, the truth is we're all just doing different things with our lives right now. It's not that we don't, it's, we never had like, we never really broke up. We never had this like, fuck you, dude, I'm sick of your shit. And, you know, we all love each other. We're all, I mean, I just hung out with Tim this weekend. We were like, you know, have an ice cream together in, at a ski resort. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we hang out all the time. Um, it's just, it, it just stopped feeling like the natural thing to do to, we, we, I mean, I guess like, you know, we all found other ways to, to make a living. So it's not like we're like depending on sugar cult to feed our families, you know? Yeah. So that, that when you're not desperate for, for money, you can actually do something for the right reason, which I think is the only reason you should be in a band or make a record is doing it as a labor of love. And we kind of look at it like, 
why is it's just why would we do a new sugar cult record right now? Like it doesn't seem like the thing we are here to do right now. Yeah. Will we do one someday? I hope so. I'll be the first one at the studio. I'll be like skidding in, you know, doing like a, you know, I'll be, I'll be like peeling out into the driveway <laughs> of the studio. I'll be the first one there. You know, um, if Tim called me right now and said, do you want to go play a show? I'd be like right there. And I get calls all the time. People asking us to play shows sometimes for really big money too. And I text him and I'll be like, dude, do you want to play? And he's like, Oh, I can't right now. You know, well, and I'm like, okay. And he's, and, and like, it would never, I, I would never want to do it unless he could do it. You know, if he didn't want to do it, I would never just do it because like, Oh, we're getting paid a bunch of money. Let me just get like somebody else from another band to fill in and sing. It's a pirate. Like that's right. Oh yeah. No, not, not at all. Also. It's like, do you, do you also, sometimes people don't think about this like legacy wise, if it if it doesn't go great, do you want that era of the band? Like, you know what I mean? Like when you look back on Sugar Cult, that reunion that was forced and the music that was kind of forced and it wasn't really there. And it's like now that's part of the legacy too. You know what I mean? You have those great records, but then you also have this part that was forced and pushed out. People don't always yeah. think about that. You I mean, integrity. you know, I generally don't like to make fear-based decisions. Like I, I would never not make a record because I would be afraid of it not being as good as our previous records, but I already, I also know that as a music fan myself, no matter how good a record, the Rolling Stones can make the best record of all time. And I'm still not going to fucking listen to it, even though they're one, probably one of my favorite bands of all time. I'll maybe I'll listen to it once, but it's, but it's never going to have a place in my heart the same way as like exile on main street or, or something like that. Right. So it's like, or, you know, or some girls or whatever, and I and I know that's kind of like, I don't know, I guess I guess it's kind of closed-minded. I mean, I love Super Drag, too. I love those first three Super Drag records with, like, I mean, like, they're masterpieces. They can make a new record right now, and I'd probably listen to it, but it's not going to occupy that same sacred space in my rock and roll heart. Um, Just because, you know, I don't know. I think it's a moment in time, and, and, and I, you know, I would love just for fun. I feel very confident in our legacy as far as, like, Start Static, Palm Trees and Power Lines, and Lights Out to me are like, you know, um, I feel like those records are very solid records that stand oh, out. And, and I feel like if that's if that was the only like, you know, message Sugar Cult left behind for the for the you know future generations to discover on their own and listen to, then I can I can I can sign off on that. I'm like that's that's good shit. That's good shit. Those are good records. I know they were well intentioned. We were making those records with our heart in the right place, and um, and they're honest and they're who they you know they're, they're who we were at the time. You know, if you listen to our first record, Start Static, it's very different than our second record, Palm Trees and Power Lines, which is also very different than our third record lights out. So each record is an honest document of where we, how we evolved as a band, but yet there's a common thread where you can tell it's sugar call. It's not like we like jumped on the emo train or jumped on the ska punk train or jumped on the screamo train or jumped on the metalcore train or jumped on the dance punk train. Like we just stayed in our, we just stayed who we were, but we evolved a lot of respect for like the shirt you're wearing, the replacements to me. I always, I always love the replacements where it's like, you know, every record sounds like an honest document of where they were as people and as a band. You know, the first record sounds like young people, you know, fucking shit up and going to punk shows. Then eventually they started, to, you could tell like 
they started to become better at, you know, caring more about songwriting. And then it got to the point where a lot of people say, oh, don't tell a soul. And, you know, those ones aren't as good because and you're like, no, they to me, they're great because they're honest. Oh, Paul yeah. Westberg wanted to write more slower songs with an acoustic guitar. It would have been dishonest if it would have sounded like, sorry, Ma, I forgot to take out the trash. You know, he didn't want to do that at that point. In his late 20s trying to pretend he's still 19, you know, yeah. and, you know, and it's it's it works both ways. Like I think of like. You know, I, I love I think Ryan Adams is a great songwriter and I love one of my favorite records of all time is his record Heartbreaker, his solo record. But he was like. His earlier band, Whiskey Town, I'd listen to those records and I didn't really believe them. They're still good records, like, you know, but the early Whiskey Town records, it felt like a guy who was too young to be singing songs like that. So it sort of felt like he was playing dress up a little bit and like reaching for something he wasn't, he hadn't stretched out enough to be able to, to reach. But by the time he made that solo record, you were like, Holy shit. He's got enough. Like he's been through enough wash and dry cycles in life that I can totally believe this guy. And then you go back and listen to maybe the last whiskey town record and you hear it with different ears. So like, I don't know this, as you can see, I'm a total nerd, but I feel like text is really important. And um, when you make a record is going to be important. And I worry sometimes, like, you know, I don't really worry, but I, I do believe that a lot of people, they're like, yo, Sugar Clutch, make another record. When, when, you know, it's like, I feel like what they're saying without realizing it is they're, they're basically saying, I wish I could be 16 again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. You're, you're, you're right about that. You know, because a lot of people. Because we, you know, that's how we are. We're 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 very emotional uh, beings, and and when you say I want the band I liked from 2005 to make another record, what you're really saying is like I want to go back to 2005. But the fact is, like we've all moved on too. None of us are who we were in 2005. So if we made a Sugar Cult record today, I don't think it would sound very similar to the records we made in the early 2000s. Because that would, again, that would be dishonest. That would be, it wouldn't be an honest representation because none of us, we've all evolved as people and as artists. Um, I think Tim's voice would sound similar. I think our tendencies, you know, we, I, I'm sure it would be a good record. You know, listen to, listen to all these songs Tim's co-written and produced and you can hear the new, you want to hear the new Sugar Cult record? Listen, to, <laughs> I can make you a playlist of like all these songs Tim's, um, let's see, Talk Too Much by Coin, Everybody Talks by, uh, by um neon trees uh shut up and dance by walk the moon um how about let's see the new the latest regrets record um you know uh uh let's see what's that song end of the game by on the new weezer record happy days on that that most that matt skiba blink 182 record you know you can put together the new sugar cult record just by like compiling all the songs turn Tim's radio literally turn on the radio like the biggest songs of like the last decade yeah turn on the radio you hear the new sugar cult record it, you know we, we snuck in there we made our we made our record um you know subconsciously it's it's, it's in there uh it's dispersed on, on everybody it's got you know a little bit of sugar cult in in uh you know a little spoonful of sugar a <laughs> spoonful of sugar cult in in on everybody else's records no, but um, no, it would be it would be fun to make a record again, and and you know, hopefully we will. It'd be fun, but only if it's only if it's right. You know, it would it would have to be. You know, it would never just. I don't think it would be the right thing to do to just make a record because we feel like it's going to get us a bunch of money, or because we feel like it's you know people are 
pestering us to do it. It, it has to be yeah. the right thing to do. I, I really, I'm really, I'm really curious. Cause like I said, I'm, I'm mostly a music fan and I'm a huge fan of sugar cult in addition to being part of it. And so I, I'm just curious. I'm as curious as everybody else. Like I would love to see what it would sound like and what it would feel like for all of us to be in a room together again. And, and, you know, you know, even if we just made the record and then never played it for anybody, even if we just did it for ourselves, you know? Well, I still want to hear kind of going off all that. Like when, when the replacements are doing their reunion stuff, I mean, Paul and Tommy did go in and rumor has it, they recorded some, I don't know how far they got, but like they did play together, but Paul didn't feel almost like you're talking about is like what they did come up with. He didn't feel like was on par for like a follow-up replacements record. Now, again, I don't know how far they got in. I don't know. I don't know what that entails, but kind of the same thing. But on the flip side, which you're also talking about, I think when you genuinely do it, like one that I think about X, I don't know if you're an X fan, but the album that they put out 2020, I mean, they put out a record in decades and I truly, that's on par with the first four records. They put out an album. It's one of the best things they've ever put out, in my opinion. So like, I like what you were talking about. I like it where it's like Sugar Colt could put out a record sometime, but the rush to do it. You know what I mean? Like a band who just rushes, like we just got to get one out because like pop punk is is big. So we just got to like put out another record. That's where I think bands can go wrong. If it genuinely, if all you guys get in a room and you like write an album that truly feels like you and it feels right, it's like that I think when good stuff can still come out. Like again, like with X, like X wasn't trying to like, put out they went decades without music like they just toured didn't put out records but wouldn't you rather that amazing record than them to try to keep putting them out just say every two years because they felt it was necessary you know what i mean like yeah yeah you don't you really don't want to fall you know if you can i mean i totally respect that some people just you know most bands it's just like it's the only way they can make a living but man you can always tell when someone makes a record when someone makes a record just because they're trying to, you know, grab that, you know, I don't know. It's just, whatever. It's, it's still going to be, you know, it doesn't really matter, I guess, why someone makes a record as long as you make a record. But, but I think when they come from a, you know, the, the intention does matter to some degree, like what, what, where's it coming from? Is it coming from like, Hey, we, we have something to say, or is it just like, Oh, we got to figure something out here. Cause we got to get back on the fucking, you know, we got to get back on the, uh, hoodie traveling traveling hoodie salesman circuit you know we got Um, hoodies to sell and you know i mean i feel like our band was always a little bit misunderstood and i don't mind it because i think we were misunderstood in a way that served us really well we were able to to uh you know sell a lot of records and, and have a lot of people at our shows but i don't believe we ever once identified ourselves as a pop punk band or as an emo band but we got kind of like thrown in with that whole movement when it was happening and it worked out it was cool because we got invited to a lot of those parties and got invited to a lot of tours but i do feel like we were always a little bit of a sort of flag without a nation you know like we didn't really fit the mold like if you go back now retrospectively and look at pictures of sugar cult and then look at pictures of other bands that maybe were considered our contemporaries at the time those bands look a lot more like each other than we do. We're the weirdos over here in the corner, like dressed like we're from, you know, we were like trying to dress like the clash or something like that. And then everyone else was like wearing like Hurley baggy shorts and doing like unison jumps, you know, and had like side cocked ball caps on. Like we were not shopping at Hot Topic or like trying to be like some 41 or Blink-182. We were, we were like trying to imitate like 
we were in the used section trying to find cool shit from the, like we were trying to look like Blondie and the cars and like the clash and, and like, you know, whatever, that kind of shit, <laughs> you know, but you know, we, at the same time, we, we were really enamored with that stuff, but we never wanted to like go down the road where you like become the like, you know, de facto tribute band. We didn't, we didn't want to like pretend it was still 1979, but we certainly borrowed heavily aesthetically from, from like the late seventies, early eighties, like power pop and original punk yeah. rock kind of new wave scene. You know, that was really something that we kind of connected on early on in the band. Like, you know, um, we used to cover, uh, we used to cover uh, cars by Gary Newman when, when we would play bars in Santa Barbara, we would also play, um, Talking in Your Sleep by the Romantics, you know? And like, Pop punk bands really probably aren't really covering in their live set. Yeah, you know, eventually once we got on the Warp Tour, we did like I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones and we did like No Action by Elvis Costello. We just always kind of like, like to sort of like dip into the, the used section of the record store. And we definitely were more into like kind of mining the corpse of the past for cool ideas and aesthetic cues rather than keeping up with the joneses and trying to be like oh we got to dress like you know we got to buy the new good charlotte clothing brand or something like it just that was you know that was just wasn't what we were about and i'm not saying we're like better than or above anybody else you know that's just just who we just not what we were and i i do respect that we you know it's once you get invited to the to the cool kids table at in high school it's very it's very um, you would be forgiven to start dressing like them and start sounding like them. Right. You almost right. like have to um, I don't know if it was a form of self-sabotage or what. But for us, it was like, man, we we still want to stay who we are. And if they want to invite us to the party, we'll, we'll come to the party <laughs> for sure. Right. Like, let me at the where's the beer? Where's the girls? Where's the, you know, where's the chips and salsa? Like I'm there, but we don't want to be invited to the party conditionally. Like, okay, well, here's the thing. If you want to be at this party, you gotta, you gotta look like this. You gotta act like this. You gotta sound like this. Like we, and so that's what I think is kind of a cool thing about the scene that we, we got sort of, um, you know, kind of jumped into um, through the warp tour you know, we did the warp tour like three times and like magazines, like alternative press. And like you said, like fuse, like there was all, a sort of movement around. that was happening in the early, early mid to mid two thousands, you know, with like pop punk and emo and, and they were certainly like embraced us. And a lot of people just kind of go, I mean, I constantly go do like DJ gigs at those emo night parties and, you know, we're, we're, we're cool with it, but it's just nothing we ever self-identified as, you know, we, we none of, I mean, if you, if you look through my record collection, Tim's record collection, Aaron's record collection. And I don't even know if our drummer has a record collection, but like, if you look through any of our shit, you're not going to find one record by any of those bands. Not because we don't like them. I mean, maybe, I don't know. Let's see. I mean, we're going to have green day records. Throw a green day in there. We're going to have green day records. I mean, green day is a huge influence on sugar cult for sure. But, and Foo Fighters, and maybe maybe you'd find Bleed American by Jimmy Eat World and some of those earlier Mark Trombino Jimmy Eat World records. 
Got to have those in there. Gotta those have some- are great records. I mean, you know, we 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 super like we held Jimmy World's uh, Bleed American up with high high regard, but you know that's about it. Totally, it's you know, that's about it. It's kind of funny you mentioned that man because like just as being a fan throughout the years, and I really think like truly it's just from like following you on Instagram, but realizing like kind of that not that like I had assumptions of like what your music tastes were per se, but going oh fuck like this guy really likes the replacements or like Super Drag or like this or that like really getting getting a better idea of what someone's taste in music is actually someone who comes up to mind I know we've talked about but like Chris Rowe comes to mind where you think Atari's and pop punk but like. At the height of that band, if you look at like press photos, he's wearing a My Bloody Valentine t-shirt or like I was oh, yeah. talking about, like, you know, they, they're oh, having the guy who produced like, you know, Husker Du work with him because he fucking loves Husker Du. The whole right. reason I got into Billy Bragg was because they covered a New England, like oh, literally God, through so the Ataris, I got into Billy Bragg and Sebado, yeah. like these weird bands who have nothing. You wouldn't think of Billy Bragg and Sebado with like the Ataris per se, but fuck Chris Rowe likes the good shit and yeah. you kind of. Kind of like with well, Sugar like you're bringing I mean, people. And I'll tell you what, dude, when we would tour, you know, we would tour with a lot of these, these bands and, and I would bond with them. And I'll tell you, like the members of the bands, like I think about Paul from Good Charlotte, the bass player of Good Charlotte. We toured with them a million times and I never really got, I mean, I know Joel, the singer was like super into hip hop. Like all he ever listened to was like, like hip hop. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, but Paul, the bass player, he was like into the most like avant-garde, trippy, like Boards of Canada and Thievery Corporation, like really cool, like electronic music and like experimental, like, you know, Warp Records kind of shit and just super cool shit that you would you would never equate with Good Charlotte, right? Um, like I said, Joel was super into hip hop. Then I think about like, we toured with, uh, motion city soundtrack. Those guys we, were like our buddies. We toured with them a bunch of times. First time we ever headlined in Europe, they opened for us. And, uh, that was 20 years ago, by the way. Wow. They're just celebrating the 20 year anniversary of that first record with like, um, future freaks me out getting to know those guys, you know, they got lumped in. It was always like, you know, get up kids. And you know, the, they were sort of seen as like the new get up kids or something, dude, you get in there with their record collection. Those guys are into like, like archers of loaf and jaw box and like, you know, um, just the, the, the coolest fucking underground indie music from the nineties, you know, nothing about them was, was like what people eventually lumped them in with. So, and then same thing with like Mark from, we toured with blink 182. I'd sit with Mark and we'd geek out like, you know, share iPods with each other and like basically steal each other's music, you know, <laughs> Um, and, uh, cause that's just what you did. You know, when there was iTunes, it was like, dude, let me plug into your laptop and drag a bunch of your stuff onto my iPod. And I remember that. I remember like, doing that. Next to this like multimillionaire. And he's like, dude, can I grab that from you? So it just goes to show we're not stealing music cause we can't afford it. We're stealing music cause we love music and we just can't get enough of it. But that is a wonderful quality I see. in lots of people in, in all these bands, I don't mean to be name dropping, but there's people that just are in love with music, in love with it, you know? And I love to see that when someone's like, um, so Mark Hoppus just into such, like, he was like, he's the one who turned me on to block party. He was all about this band block party. He loves the cure, obviously yeah. nothing about, I mean, he also loved like, um, you know, the, he loves the replacements. He, he, he loves so much stuff. Like he's not sitting there going, dude, do you want to hear newfound glory? Like he's not <laughs> telling me about like, you know, 
you know, he's he's like into and it's not to say Newfound Glory is not awesome. And by the way, speaking of Newfound Glory, look at their singer, Jordan. Half the time he's wearing like a Pixies T-shirt. Yeah. Or something like that. You know, the he's, wiper shirt. he wears the wipers a lot. Like, a you know, totally. He's got great fucking taste of music. And then their their guitar player, Chad, who's like super immersed. Hardcore, in dude. Hardcore. You know, he was in like Shy Halud and he comes from like he's like all about like, you know, the, the East Coast, like bands like Avail and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just, I, I don't know what, where I'm going with this, but like, it's the same thing. Like if you talk to Cone, uh, Cone from uh, Sum 41, he's just like all about like cool, like, you know, 70s British punk rock and like New York City punk rock. Like, you know, people who are in bands are usually people that are music fanatics and yeah. they're not necessarily, it's not to say they don't like the music they play, but that's, but it's, it's short-sighted to assume that just because somebody plays a, you know, a certain style of music that that's what they're going to go home and listen to, you know, yeah. you get that though, dope, man, you must comply. Don't get high off your own supply NWA. Right. So um, yeah, same thing. Joey Cape. I remember when I was a kid hanging out with Joey Cape, I tripped out. Cause he was like before Lagwagon, he played in like a crazy, like thrash metal band that sounded like anthrax or something. Oh, and, shit. and then when he got in Lagwagon, you know, Lagwagon was very like, you know, kind of metal punk, like really it, and you go, you 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 hang out with Joey Cape. You flip through his like playlist. He's like Jim Croce, Carol King, Neil Diamond, Elton John. I mean, he's just all about like singer songwriters from the seventies. That's what he's all about. Like Seals and Crofts, like all that shit. Not one thing. He's not listening to Pennywise and <laughs> and, and Bad Religion. I mean, of course, he loves those bands, but like that's not where he comes from. He's coming from no. like, you know, it's, it's it. And the funny thing is I list, I read an interview with, with uh, James Hetfield from Metallica and he was like, they're like, what do you listen to? He's like, I listen to Tom Waits. I listen to Jackson Brown. I listen to James Taylor. You know, I listen to queen and it's like not one thing that he say. he's not like, Oh, I listen to Slayer and I listen to Testament and I listen, you know, so it's just, you know, it's it, when I was a kid and I'd read about the bands I liked, and I had this really sort of small, narrow-minded worldview of like, okay, these are the bands I like. But then I'd read their interviews and they would open my mind and 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 like show me other cool shit, you know? And, and that's what yeah. leads you to like discovering all this other cool shit. And so I feel like as we were touring, it was, it's almost like your responsibility. Like when you see Chris wearing his, you know, My Bloody Valentine shirt, it's like you want to, you get this moment where people are staring at you or they're listening to you. You get this opportunity to like, break through that for another kid out there who thinks that, Oh, I'd like to try out different music, but I'm not allowed to. Cause I'm I, cause I identify as an emo kid and it's like, no man, check it all out. It's all cool. You know, it's like, and there's so much cool shit to discover out there. And, and I think it belongs to it's, it's, it's like incumbent on the, the artists of whatever generation that's out there doing it to sort of like curate the museum of rock and roll and be like, Hey, by the way, check out this cool shit too. You know, yes. but you gotta know your roots. I, I mean, cause like what you're going off of, I could talk about this for a million years. Cause like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not on the band side, but like, I was going to ask you if you get that misconception of, yeah, like people just for some reason, like assume you listen to whatever your music is. And it's like the thing I've learned probably from interviewing bands. And I mean, just in general throughout life is like, yeah, they're not sitting around listening. If you're in a skate punk band, more than likely you're not sitting around the other 23 hours of the day listening to skate punk. Like you probably listen to different things and like, you know, it, it's good to listen to different kinds of music. You can like, like all those bands you mentioned, 
I love Newfound Glory. I love Sum 41. I love Sugar Cold. I love like all these different, uh, you know, like all these different bands. But I also love like the bands you're talking about. Like I love Super Drag. I love the replacements. I love, you know, like you can like more than one thing is I think what I'm getting at. Some people don't oh, seem to sure. realize that. You can like more. And most of your favorite musicians probably do like more than one thing. Oh, it's where the sound is morphed. Like if for they sure. liked one thing, they'd sound like that one thing. Dude, I, I, this is so random, but I somehow ended up at a birthday party. My This guy we know who used to be in the Warp Tour world, he now plays guitar in LA Guns, the like 80s oh, kind of, yeah. you know, hard rock band. And um, and I was at this p- birthday party for him at the Rainbow, which is like the total like heavy metal hangout on the Sunset Strip. And in Boston, of course, like because he's in L.A. Guns, so Tracy Guns, the, the the main guy from from L.A. Guns, who was actually the reason Guns and Roses are called Guns and Roses, because originally before Slash, he was the guitar player. So it was Tracy Guns with Axl Rose. So they called it Guns and Roses. It's kind of Locked, a little yeah. fun fact. Um, anyway, he's in there and all these other like long hair metal dudes are in there. They're all playing in different like one guy was playing in like the touring version of Cinderella. And other guys like I was meeting all these people from the metal world. All we talked about the whole night was jellyfish. Have you ever heard the band Jellyfish? The metal like band. Jellyfish, yeah. Yeah, brilliant band. But they're like they're, they're like this super power pop, like kind of like bubblegum, like really amazing. Actually, the guitar player of Jellyfish, Jason, from their first record, now plays um, guitar for St. Vincent. Oh, really? And the keyboard player mains like co co-songwriter of jellyfish roger manning has been playing keyboards for beck for like years and then um yeah so small world small world small world um and uh yeah so i could get i could get into it jellyfish is another one of those bands like this is anomaly this band that happened in the early 90s didn't really attain commercial success but has become like mythological like Anytime you talk to this group full of like these metal, like shredding metal players, all they're talking about is jellyfish. They are you one know, of those fans, you know. Um, anyways, I could I could go on and on, but dude, uh, speaking of the replacements, you just reminded me the singer uh, Jimmy, the singer of Pennywise. Yeah, he is like fa- favorite band of all time. Replacements. Oh fuck yeah! Okay, so more nerdy history since I brought up Pennywise. The guy who was the singer of Pennywise before Jim. When they were just like a local band in in the in Hermosa Beach, Manhattan Beach area, yeah, um, in the South Bay, there's a guy named Keith Brown. Oh, that's Popsico. You're singer in Santa Barbara after Pennywise kicked him out because he started writing too many songs about girls. <laughs> he was he was more of a power <laughs> pop guy, and I mean they love him. They're all friends, but like he was like a freshman and they were seniors. You know, he was like super young. And so he moved down to Santa Barbara with his new band that he had with his buddies called um, uh, The Wonderfuls. And The Wonderfuls play a show with my high band in high school called Lost Kittens. And we all sort of got to know each other a little bit. And then years later, I'm like living in L.A. with um, Chris Shiflett and all them trying to get The Lost Kittens happening after I graduated high school. And then I come back to Santa Barbara because that band falls apart. I come back to Santa Barbara and I connect with Keith Brown and the old drummer of Lost Kittens, Steve Sherlock, who's now the drummer of Nerf Herder. And we My start God. a band. We start a band. And eventually I get this guitar player, a guy named Tim, to play with us. Not Tim Pagnotta from Sugar Cult, but this guy named Tim Cullen. And we started this band that eventually um, eventually Steve had to leave because he, he just didn't want to do it as full on as, as we did. And we got this other guy, Mick Flowers, to play. And that's what became Popsico. 
That's amazing. Everything is like connected and grafted onto itself. It's it's such a trip. Keith was actually, he was not from Santa Barbara. He moved to Santa Barbara. He grew up in the South Bay and was the original singer of Pennywise. That's insane. Yeah. It's fucking insane. Yeah. I and you listen to Popsicle, we sound nothing like Pennywise, but you realize Popsicle sounds a lot like the replacements. And Keith's growing up in Manhattan Beach around the same, and Jim Lindbergh's there. They're all listening to the replacements. Like my, my buddy who was from that same group of friends, because those guys are all a bit older, you know, like I was the baby in Popsicle. I was like the teenager playing in a band with a bunch of guys in their 20s, you know. But like um, those guys are like, everybody in Manhattan, if you come to California, where are you in the world? Where are you? I, I'm in, I'm like 90 minutes from Buffalo, New York. I'm in Western oh, okay. New York. So if you're in California, like if you're in LA, if you go to the, to the ocean, there's like, there's, there's like uh long beach is over here. Then you've got like San Pedro, which is where like the Minutemen were from. Yes, and yes. then you've got this kind of ritzy area called um, uh, Palos Verdes. And then right on the other side of that, you've got, uh, Redondo Beach, um, Hermosa Beach, and Manhattan Beach. So it's like these three beaches, beach cities that are all adjacent to each other. So they call it the South Bay. And so from that little area right there, you get Black Flag, Red Cross, Circle Jerks, Descendants, <laughs> and then years later, Pennywise, right? So, and then sort of in that area, you also get the Beach Boys, by the way. Okay, you go a little bit further and you've got, um, giving you guys a geography lesson, you've got uh, Venice Beach and Santa Monica, okay? And then eventually you get to Malibu over there, okay? So in Venice, you got Suicidal Tendencies and Excel, you know? Uh, I can't remember who's from Santa Monica. Shit, I'm totally blanking. But yeah, all, so many bands that come from like this. And then if you go all the way up the coast, eventually you get to um, Santa Barbara, you know, which is like 90 miles away. That's where we all came from. And that's where you get RKL, Lagwagon, the Ataris, Mad Caddies, Nerf Herder, Sugar Cult, um, you know, on and on and on. It, it is funny. I, I've, I've visited Santa Barbara once and my two first stops was the Blue Skies trailer park, the sign, the big right. old sign. And then I went down to Haley Street and I had to take a picture of the, I, I had to say I was down on Haley. Yep. Those literally the two things I did when I got there. Those were the first two things I did. Yep, that's amazing. I love that. And that Nerf Herder song, Down on Haley, was actually, there's two songs on that first Nerf Herder record that were from Perry's previous band, Perry Grip, who of course now has become his, his own thing with like yes. all those cool little songs he writes. Um, before Nerf Herder, he had an amazing band that used to play with Popsico all the time. Um, and they were called Decline of Paisley John Shaver. And Perry was like, um, he used to call himself Andrew Broomhead and he used to write the like column in the local free like entertainment paper. He wrote the like column about the local music scene. Oh, nice. It was called Positively State Street. And so he had two songs in that band that were like the best songs that band had. One was called Sorry and one was called Down on Haley. And sure. then when he started Nerf Herder with Steve, they, they carried some of those songs over. And those are the two songs of the whole Decline of Paisley John Shaver catalog that stuck. And um, yeah, kind of a fun little yeah. fact. I mean, it's, it, I'm getting in the weeds here, Anthony. I'm telling <laughs> you, know, you, don't, you don't get it. Like this stuff, this is this. I love this stuff. Like okay, everything cool. we've talked about, I love this. Stuff. I mean, I literally went to Santa Barbara and went to a trailer park to take a selfie in front of a neon stuff. Like 
I love this shit. I absolutely love it. You'll appreciate this. So when I was in the Ataris with Chris and Derek, it was just the three piece. Me and Derek started jamming because we were waiting for Chris, I think, at the rehearsal space. And I was trying to rip off the band Super Chunk because we were all really into Super Chunk at the time. And um, I was trying to write a song. I was like, I was trying to, I was like, what would Super Chunk do? Like just sort of trying to like write a song inspired by Super Chunk. And I started doing this riff and it was like, and Derek started just playing like, and so we start playing this thing. And and then Chris walks in and he's like, dude, what the fuck is that? I love that. And me and Derek had worked it out. And it's basically just the instrumental to what became the song 11596. Oh shit! Yeah, that's so amazing. If you on that record, "Blue Skies," that you're talking about, that's the one song that I that I wrote for the Ataris. <laughs> and super chunk influenced. And it was it was just me and Derek sitting in there trying to like because I was like Derek, I have this idea. It's kind of a super chunk vibe, and we just started playing it. Yeah, that is amazing. That is absolutely yeah. that also. Chris, Chris basically added the melody and the lyrics, and that became one fifteen ninety six. That's and wild. I believe 11596, Chris was like a teen father. Like he had a kid when he was like 16. I think that was, I think that was the song. That, I think that was the birthday of his, of his kid that he had had. I've always so wondered what that date lyrics, was. It's like, Angie, I'm sorry. You know, like basically like I, you know, was too young to be a dad. And so he, you know, he, so he basically had to like bail on his like girlfriend and their kid to go to, Santa Barbara and make it as the Ataris, you know, but, um, you know, he was too young to be a dad, but it's like, you know, it's like, it's a really touching song if you listen to it. Um, so I was like, I was very like, you know, um, honored that it was kind of like my little souvenir. Cause I, I was, I had left the Ataris by the time that record came out and was made and actually Joey Cape produced that record. I don't think I realized he produced yeah. that actually Joey produced that record and he produced the, the first Nerf Herder record. Yeah. Oh, wow. um, so it was a lot of, like I said, it's a lot of intertwined stuff. And then and actually the reason bad astronaut became a band was because I had already played in bad, you know, in, in the Ataris with Derek and Joey had played with him with Lagwagon, And I had actually played with Derek in a, it's a whole other story, but I played with him in a band when we were children called illiterate that eventually morphed into a band called section eight that eventually got taken over by Joey after I left and became Lagwagon. So Jesus. there's that. Um, so much fucking history. It's um, insane. So once me and Derek were hanging out, I think we were both home. I was, he was, I can't remember who Derek was playing with at the time. And I was, I think he might've been playing with RKL and I was home from like doing some, you know, I was kicking around getting sugar cult started and, uh, and me and Derek and Joey, like somehow just met up and started drinking. And we were like, dude, kind of like, felt bad that we weren't like we're like i miss when you know all our bands were so serious sugar Cult was getting really serious lag lag wagon was super serious and professional and i can't remember what derek was doing but we were just sort of lamenting like do you remember the good old days when we would just like get together and just make up songs and like you know hang out and just kind of like do it for just you know without any any expectations and we we're kind of just you know having some drinks and talking about that and then we had this idea we're like dude we should just start doing that and um let's get together and just play. Like, and Joey was like, you know, I have a bunch of songs that don't really fit lag wagon. Um, we should just get together and see what happens. So me, Derek and Joey started playing together and that's what became bad astronaut. Nice. So Another three of us. And I had a song called single that I had written. And then um, Joey had like, he liked it and kind of reconfigured it. And that became a song. Um, 
we, you know, we just kind of worked on these songs. And then we brought in, um, we went to this recording studio where we all would record called Orange Whip in our hometown. And uh, one of the engineers there was my buddy, Tom Flowers, who had played in the lap dancers with me. And he's a great guitar player and great songwriter. And then the guy who owns the studio was this cello player named Angus Cook, who actually been in a band with Tom called The Woodburning Project that was amazing um, in Santa Barbara. Um, and so like those guys knew each other and we sort of like had like Tom play some guitar on the record because he's, you know, otherwise it was Joey's a pretty good guitar player, but Tom's like a really good guitar player. So Tom would play some parts on it. Um, Angus, we eventually got Angus in there to play some cello on the record. Nice. And then we had this other guy um, named Todd Caps, who we just a friend from our local music scene who Joey had grown up with. And we, you know, we, we wanted some keyboards. So we called Todd to play some keyboards on the record. And then eventually, you know, um, we, we basically made this mandate where we were like, we were going to try not to do photo shoots. We were not going to like make t-shirts. We we're definitely not going to play shows. Bad Astronaut didn't play a show ever until... I mean, we made our first record in like 2000 or 2001. And I think we played our first show ever in like 2010 or 2011. <laughs> it took a while. It was a we, long we, time. We, the whole thing when we started the band was like, we're not going to play shows. We're not going to tour. We're not going to do photo shoots. We're not going to do interviews. We're just going to make records. And like, they're going to be these like art project records. Like anything goes like we can just like experiment and just, you know, use the studios and instrument kind of like inspired by like pet sounds and Sergeant Peppers, like that sort of mentality of like, let's go in without ever having to worry about trying to play these songs live. Let's just make these like, who cares who plays on what part? Like, let's just, you know, we did all these really um, unorthodox kind of recording methods. It was, it was super fun records to make. Um, I remember Joey had an idea. He went to Radio Shack and bought like every single little like shitty microphone they had like the little like toy microphones and like little oh, yeah. dating, you know machines that like lawyers would have to like you know this little, this little mini cassette players he bought a bunch of those and put them on a table in front of the drums and then like mic the drums with those <laughs> so they would distort and so if you listen to some of the drums like we had like the traditional mics on the drums but then we also had those so he would mix that in i tracked all my bass parts through a guitar amp you know oh, oh. um so like we did all kinds of cool shit, you know, in the studio. Um, and we never, you know, it wasn't like we didn't worry about like first it was just me, Derek and Joey was. In the, but then we we're like, well, since this isn't re a real band, we might as well just make everybody in the band. So we we're like, OK, Angus is in the band. Tom's in the band. If you play on this record, you're in the band. At one point, we had this other guy named Jonathan come in on the second record and, and did some uh, programming stuff. So he was in the band. For, you know, if you look at like pictures of Bad Astronaut that are out there, it's like. You know, it's like it's as bad as Ed Sharp. There's like all these people just <laughs> hanging out. It's just kind of this musical collective without any conceit that we were ever going to like play shows or be a traditional band. Eventually, we did start playing some shows long after Derek passed away. But uh, and it was really fun to play those shows. And hopefully I always hope that maybe we'll do more. But, you know, it's hard. That astronaut's like six people. So it's it's hard to get like six grownups to clear their schedules and be able to do something, you know. It's a, it's a hard thing about the band. I mean, it's like, I think everybody wants to be in one, but I mean, we, and we talked about earlier, I mean, keeping it going, the longevity and being able to make it work and stuff like, you know, there, there's wanting to get in and have the band, but the actual work and the stuff that goes into it, that's hard to keep it going. Yeah, I mean, sometimes. It's, a, it's, it's a lot, you know, and, and, you know, I, I do like, I, I love, there's something to be said about having like a long-term band, you know, that's just like, you know, keeps on going like the Foo Fighters or something that's yeah. through the years, Iron Maiden or whatever you got, you know, um, 
there's something about that that I, I, I do kind of lament. Like, I wish that we had that. Like, I really wish Sugar Cult would still be uh, just a regular band that would, like, make records, tour, even if we took long breaks. But, you know, I'm only one guy in a four-person band. So you can't, you know, you can't force that kind of shit. If if, <clears throat> if everybody's not on that page, it's not going to work. Otherwise, it's, it's just, you know. But But I think that. I think that whether you're a band like the Foo Fighters that continues on for indefinitely, or if you're something like the Playing Favorites that's basically a project, you know, at the end of the day, it's all a project. Because every time when you're in a band, your record is your project, and you're doing it. You're you're making up the songs, you're fine tuning the songs, you're going and capturing the songs, you're documenting it, then you're packaging it, then you're going out and you're touring and you're playing those songs. And then inadvertently you make up more songs and then when, and then you make another. So it's like, it's like each record you make as a kid, whether it's, it's like a kid you've had. And sometimes you have a kid with the same person. Sometimes you have a kid with a bunch of different people, but you, but each one of them still gets to have its own life. And so I look at like, I don't see it like the records I made with sugar cult, the records I made with bad astronaut, the record I made with the playing favorites, the record I made with popsicle, that, you know, I don't see those as like separate things. They're all like, they're all things that I'm a part of that I, that I, I see at the same, and it doesn't matter. Like I don't love palm trees and power lines more than I love the playing favorites just because the palm trees and power lines made a lot more money and so, and had bigger hits on the radio. And like, same thing with like Popsico, no one's heard Popsico, but to me, that's probably, a, if I had to pick one record, that's the record I'm most proud of, of all the records I ever made in my life, it's probably that one. Cause that was the first record really? I ever made, you know? And it was the first band that I really like got real, started to get traction with and, and has, you know, it's, it's such a, it's like a really important moment in my, in my life. And I listened to the record. I'm like, this is a fucking great record. So it really is. it's not like it's a cringe thing where you go back and listen. And you're like, oh, God, what were we thinking? We were so young and naive. Like, I, I go back and listen. And I go, fuck, I can't believe I was on that record. That's like a record I would buy, you know? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, if yeah. you want to talk like I mean, I want to talk a bit about that here. Like, I mean, off to a bad start, because like I was telling you, I'm just discovering you guys. And I mean, from the second I heard a song just a few weeks ago, I probably heard Popsico a week before I hit you up. That was my introduction. And like fucking hit me in the face right away i'm like oh my god how did i never know you're in this band how did i not know about you got right up my alley i'm like how like oh, cool you almost feel disappointed that you're just learning you're uh, happy well, learning you know, about it. That, that's the reason why we decided to do this uh this reissue of the record because we you know we made this record and at the time you know things were really happening in the 90s and then you know after our singer keith died we just kind of like all went and did different things you know like i've already told you that whole story um, our drummer went off and eventually played in the rentals with the bass player of Weezer, Matt nice. Sharp, and our um, other singer, guitar player, co-singer, guitar player, Tim Cullen, eventually um, got made an amazing record uh, with a band he had called Summer Camp that was on Madonna's label, Maverick. They made this great record. You should look it up. Um, but, you know, everyone just sort of went off with their lives, you know, went on with their lives and did things. And eventually, like, you know, it was just one of those things where, when you're young, you, you just don't have the time to look back. You're constantly just like, you're just 10 and two going like 90 miles an hour, trying to like, you, you know, tear off the rear view mirror. Don't look back. You know, it's just, it, it really. And so all of a sudden time goes by and I'm just like, you know, I feel like, I think it's probably, you know, such a cliche, but probably during the like, you know, lockdown era of the pandemic where you just have time to like, 
get a little bit more reflective and like that's where we put out that bad astronaut box set with the yeah. final reissue and that you know sugar cult had the 20 year anniversary of start static that we did a vinyl thing for you know um and so just that was sort of in the air and and my uh you know my buddy steve who lives close to me who was keith brown's best friend he was like the drummer of the band the wonderfuls that keith originally played in before popsico um, he's like, you know, we just, every once in a while text each other. And, you know, he hit me up about, um, Hey man, he's a, he's a writer now. He's like a, he's a fiction writer. Oh, nice. and he's like, I want to do like an oral history of Popsico. Would you, would you be willing to give me some quotes? He's like, I just feel like, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, young people are in bands that are sort of taking their cues from the nineties right now. And I feel like there's this, this is a story that needs to be told, you know, especially since some of the guys in Popsico went on to do other bands like sugar cult or whatever, it's like, and, and I was like, dude, of course I'll give you, you know, send me your questions and I'll, and I'll, and I'll do the interview. And then I connected him to, to Mick and Tim, the other two guys from the band and, and they did some interviews. And then eventually, of course, we started to like, we got Chris Shiflett to give some testimony. We got Joey Cape to give some testimony. Other people that were involved, we found old, you know, I, I saved everything. So I had like old, like magazine clippings from us and pulled out like quotes from Keith from what, you know, from times he had gotten interviewed we got fletcher from pennywise to give us some quotes and we started growing into this thing i was like you know what it's a shame to just have this be something that lives on your blog i was like we should get this thing so i got to be published in this um in the santa barbara independent in our hometown paper and then we we're like we should develop this into a book and then i'm like you know what we should do is reissue the music because no one can listen to the music and so that we he had been connected to this label called big stir records and they were like specialized in like finding like cool, obscure, un, uh, you know, underground stuff. And so they, they were like, you know, let's put out like a, let's do like a vinyl pressing of this record. Cause it had come out on CD and then gone out of print, you know, a million years ago and never, you know, no one ever really had the, like, it's kind of just like, Oh, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to, you know, do you want to deal with it? No, I don't want to deal with it. So we never really put it, put it out on like, on like Spotify and all that kind of stuff. So it was just like, you know, people have to dig for it. It's out there somewhere. And we're like, let's just put this out in a way that's going to be proper. But then, of course, because we're crazy, we're like, we can't do anything halfway. So let's go all the way. And I like found all these old flyers we had. And I wrote these liner notes and we did this whole thing. And we and we revised the cover art. We reconfigured the, the songs. Um, you know, we just we changed all the you know, we just kind of like gave it a, a, a fresh coat of paint and then we made the oral history, we expanded it. I, I found a bunch of like, you know, like just memorabilia. Like I have the original like piece of paper that Keith wrote his phone number down on and then like had like charted out the lyrics to some song and you know, just all this cool shit, set lists, old flyers and photographs, and just cool shit that's just like been sitting in a box at my mom's house for a hundred years. And just kind of put a bunch of that stuff together. And we made an actual book that is, is like the history of Popsico. And so you buy the vinyl and it comes with a book. Oh, nice. And it's limited edition. There's only 250 copies of it. So I hopefully there's not sold out yet. But that's out there right now. You can get it through Big Stir Records. I think it's BigStirRecords.com. And, uh, and then the... Um, you know, they've been like sort of gradually releasing like two sing two songs at a time and making those available for streaming. And I imagine at some point, probably when the record sells out, we'll put the whole record on on like Spotify. So, you know, and then the book will maybe come out as like an ebook or something like that. But I mean, I don't know. I'm just the type of person that likes to have a thing, have a collector's oh. item, you know. 
So, I gotta tell you, I mean, seeing I, I haven't I haven't ordered one yet, but seeing the zine and like the whole setup of it, I love it because it's this really nice and neatly packaged, like, hey, if you're not familiar with this band, it's all right here. You've kind of yeah. put you kind of you kind of put everything for us where it's like you may not be familiar with us, but you're gonna get a fucking history lesson. Like this is a this is a nice crash course into popsicle. Like you don't have to go digging for this weird thing or this or that including a band from pre-social media. So a lot of this right. stuff's probably, you can't find those magazine clippings. But like well, with this, you can fucking jump on this and now all of a sudden you have years worth of stuff which would have taken forever to dig up if I could even dig it up. And now it's all in right. this one nice place. You yeah, know, the well, that's the, the idea. Thing. I mean, that's the idea is like, we wanted this, you know, we we're just like, look, man, we need to make this available to the world. Um, you know, people can decide if they like it or not. But, you know, we, we did it. It's a document. We existed and we were a thing. And so let's put this out there. And, and, and you know, and that was just sort of our attitude. It was like the idea of putting out the story. But then we were like, well, we need the music to be available if we're going to tell the story. And then we were like, but if we're going to put out the music, we got to tell the story. You know, so it just sort of became this like complimentary situation where it was like, I mean, I'm not saying the record doesn't stand up on its own. You can just put on the record and listen to it. But I, but right. like we were saying earlier, it's like when you know the context and you know the story, you can put it in and you can, you know, place it in its place in history. You just appreciate it more. Oh, absolutely. You know? Like for instance, this, this thing I have hanging up on my wall here, it's just like, you look at it. It's like, Oh, that's cool art. Like someone come over to my house for dinner and see that and go, Oh, I like that. And then, you, and they go, what is that? And then I go, well, it's, you know, they go, is that John Lennon? And you go, yeah. Okay, well, that's cool. That there's a little circle around it. And they go, yeah, well, that's the germs logo. Why is John Lennon have the germs logo on his face? Because that was the cover of the LA Weekly, which is the, the newspaper in LA, on the week that John Lennon was murdered. Because Darby Crash, the singer of the germs, o- overdosed on heroin the same, like the day before or the day after John Lennon was murdered which is the, you know, so basically they were like, here's an issue where we were like two iconic frontman, one from the biggest band in the world and one from probably the most like notorious punk band from California. Yeah. Both are dead and we're doing, we're covering both of those stories. So they made this like the cover of the LA weekly. So this guy, you know, an artist put together like limited edition prints of it. And I'm like, dude, I got to have that. Cause I like, to me, that's pop punk. You got the germs. Yeah. The Beatles, pop, John Lennon, who's probably the most punk rock of the Beatles as far as just like, you know, the, the, he's the most incendiary, outspoken motherfucker, right? And it's like, to me, it's just like, that says so much. But in and of itself, you could just walk in and go, oh, I like that. I like the composition of that design. Like some little kid who doesn't know who the Beatles or the germs are could just walk in and be like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You know? So to me, that's the beauty of art is it's like, it should be, appreciated on on the surface level just in and of itself without knowing that it was from the 90s or from yesterday or from tomorrow but then it can be more deeply appreciated once you know the story and usually once you know the story even the part of it that didn't resonate with you before now suddenly resonates with you yeah yeah i i love it i lo- and actually i love that too that, that i've been staring at that this whole interview not knowing <laughs> not really, i didn't even see the germ i didn't see the circle i didn't even see the germs logo nor would i nor would i put that together but holy fuck that's amazing yeah that is so goddamn cool 
that is neat. Oh my God. That is so re- Yeah. You definitely had to order one of those. That was definitely. I, I had to. And I'm such a nerd. Work. Like if you've ever heard of this guy named Brian Ray Turcott, he, he wrote like the book called um, fucked up and photocopied. And he, he has like these is amazing, like um, coffee table books about like punk rock culture. So this book, his, his first one was fucked up and photocopied. Then he did one that was like punk is dead punk is i can't remember what it was called and then he also recently did one where he collected a bunch of like original punk rock t-shirts and then like took photographs of them so it's like a coffee table book of nice. so he did this thing and it was like a benefit like the money that they raised from selling these was uh put to something and it didn't actually come signed but i asked him if he would sign it because it was it was they were in limited edition there's like 50 i think 50, maybe 52 of them made and and he asked me what number do you want? And I was like, number 13. So he he signed it for me and numbered it 13 out of 50 or whatever it is. That's fucking it. amazing, dude. Right? That um, is so cool. I mean, you know, it's just I'm such a nerd. And it's not like I'm doing that so he'll so I'll be able to like sell it for a bunch of money one day. Like that's the last thing on my mind. It's just that, you know, like we're saying, I'm just fucking, I'm, I'm just an overgrown fucking teenager. I just still love, I'm still in love with the whole romance of, of it all, you know? I, I have a cowboy hat signed by Tommy Stinson that is worth $0 to anybody else. But I'm like, I fucking remember asking Tommy Stinson to sign this stupid hat he was wearing. And That's I'm like, amazing. I fucking That's love amazing. it. Like, I look at, yeah, but like, it's that thing where like, yeah, it means, I mean, I, I love, I love too talking to like someone like you who's on the musician side but is just as much of a music fan. I, 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 I <laughs> that side of it. Well, I, I mean, this sounds so, this sounds so corny. Cause I've said this before in inter- interviews, but like, I've always said, like the reason I started playing music is because like, I was such a fan that the, like, like the front row wasn't close enough. I needed to get like, <laughs> I needed to climb inside it. I needed to get on stage and like, you know, experience it from that perspective too. But, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm still, just as you know, just you'll catch me in the crowd just as much as you'll catch me on stage. You know, I, a lot of people I know that are in bands, they're like, yeah, I love music, man. I love, you know, but they're, they're, they still don't like, they love playing music. They love recording music, but they're not like wild about like, you know, listening to other people's music or collecting records or anything like that. And, and for me, it's like, no way, man. It's like, it's just, it's to me, it's all one inner, it's all connected. It's just it, playing music and making, making up songs, making records is just an extension of you know marveling it at uh at at music too and to me it's not just about the music like i love the culture i love the history i like the way the, the artwork and like the yes. the story you know there's certain artists i like reading about more than i like listening to <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> like you know what i mean like just the mythology of it all and the and the culture of it all is just so exciting you know oh absolutely yeah. absolutely you heard about the punk rock uh the 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 um punk rock museum that's about to open up yeah in Vegas. yeah i have yeah. heard about that that looks really so they, sick. they came over to my place and and took a bunch of my stuff so i, I gave them a nice. bunch of like um you know old old flyers and stuff like that but also a bunch of like the early sugar cult stuff like the the, the guitar that i have in the bouncing off the walls video and oh, like nice. i think the outfit i was wearing and um and a bunch of like early early sugar cult memorabilia so they're gonna they're gonna have that in there which is really really cool so that's it's, really it's, fucking it's, uh, cool I'm actually, I'm not, I'm probably not supposed to talk about this, but I might as well. Cause if someone's been listening for this long, then they're clearly fucking <laughs> yeah, crazy. And, and I want to be your friend. If, if you've been listening this long, DM me on Instagram right now. Cause we got to be friends. Cause you, you have passed the test. You're officially enough of a nerd that we can be friends. 
But um, starting in, I believe, in June or July, I'm going to be giving um, they're having like at the Punk Rock Museum, they're having different people from bands give like guided tours. That's like yeah. instead of having like a docent, like a museum, they're going to have like the guy from Suicidal Tendencies, the girl from L7, the guy from Rancid or whatever. And, and CJ so Ramon's gonna, doing it. You even got a fucking Ramon in there. Yeah, CJ's doing it. So I'm going to do it too. And it's like basically no, just I, like walking around telling like these kinds of stories, like just knowing about these little things and pointing stuff out that other people might not have under, you know, gotten. So it'll be a unique experience. Like if you get me to, to give you a tour, it's going to be a different than if you get like Fletcher from Pennywise to give you a tour, you know? So I think it's a cool concept. I mean, Fat Mike's yeah. such a fucking genius, man. He's, he's another one. He's, he is just a fucking visionary, you know? Um, I've known him forever too. Um, and just to have the idea, the audacity to, to, to go, yeah, there should be a museum for punk rock. But to Mike's credit, he was like, I don't just want it to be punk rock as far as my generation, you know, his generation would define it, which would be like, you know, the eighties and punk rock. He's like, I want to have it, every iteration of what they considered punk rock represented, you know? So he was like, I want all the early 2000s. He's like, I want sugar cult and, good Charlotte and all, you know, he's like, and then the, the maybe more recent bands that have been, you know, in the scene, um, you know, pierce the veil and water parks all, you know, and then he wants like going back to like Iggy pop and, and the New York dolls and, and velvet underground and, nice. you know, and then everything in between, obviously like, you, you know, the, the Ramones and the damned and the pistols and all that stuff. And, and, and all the eighties minor threat, black flag, so on and so forth. Um, and of course, no effects and bad religion and, and all that stuff too. So it's going to be really cool. It's going to be really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Literally. I was just, as you were bringing up the punk rock museum, literally the next thing I was going to ask you is you, you aren't going to be doing one of those tours. Are you, are you going to be doing tours? I was literally yeah, so what I'll I was be there. Uh, they haven't announced me yet. So, uh, yeah, but it will be in, I believe I probably have it in my calendar, but I'm too lazy to look. It's going to be like in late June, early July, something like that. So uh, definitely get on that. It's going to be fun. Plan that book is, your trip to Vegas. That is um, so funny because I also have to tell you, dude, in, in front of me here, I haven't recorded it yet, but I do monthly rundowns on the podcast. And in news here, I have Punk Rock Museum announces April and May guided tour schedule, which which I'm re- – oh, fuck yeah. So I'll be there June. Nice. June June thirtieth, July first, and July second. There I mean, you go. You heard it here first. Go. That is the time you <laughs> got to go. News. <laughs> you got to get a tour from Marco. That is fucking amazing. That is so good, man. I will. I will school you. I will school you on all the fucking the <laughs> tiniest little details of every little thing. You'll trip out. Man, okay, that is that is wild. So I mean, there's some cool things going on here. Like, I mean, if you're a fan of Marco, I mean, we got the new we got the new Popsicle out. We got uh you're gonna be doing a tour guide at the Punk Rock Museum. I mean, is there anything else going on like coming up we should tell people about you're doing? Like anything else going on in the world of Marco that well, you want to thing I'm not know? supposed to talk about is <laughs> um let's see, what week is it? I'm just gonna just give you my whole <laughs> schedule here. Let me just flip through my calendar. I'm not against um, it. I've got to try to change my kid's orthodontist appointment from 2.30 on Tuesday to a different time because um, they might go snowboarding. Okay, what else do I have to think about? Oh, look, I'm going to be – I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I'm, I'm going to be the secret surprise guest DJ at Emo Night in Portland, Oregon, 
not Portland, Maine. I don't know where you're watching this in Portland, Oregon. Um, and that will be next Friday, April 7th, so not yeah. this Friday, but the week from Friday. So Friday, April 7th at the Holocene in Portland, Oregon. I'm going to be there as your big surprise, uh, <laughs> DJ. And, um, so you can come to that. And then, like I said, the Punk Rock Museum. And then just follow me on Instagram, Marco, M-A-R-K-O, DeSantis, D-E-S-A-N-T-I-S, like the asshole in Florida. Fuck, <laughs> I get to have that name. And now this motherfucker comes along. Anyway, um, so uh, yeah, so just follow me on Instagram and DM me. I always re- reply to my DMs. Um, and uh, I do a lot of DJ gigs. Um, I've got a whole bunch of other shit in the works, but, I, but I'll just uh, I'll keep you in suspense. But yeah, hopefully some new music coming out. Hopefully some uh, things you can read coming out. But right now, I want to focus. I want to get you up to speed. Go back and uh, revisit the Sugar Cult catalog. Nice. You you know, Bouncing Off the Walls, you know memory. A lot of people don't know um, our third record, Lights Out, which in my never-to-be-humble opinion is our best record. So go back and rediscover Lights Out. I think it's a great record. Not enough people heard it. Um, And uh, listen, find the playing favorites. Go back and check out Bad Astronaut. Pull yourself up to speed, and then we'll get to some new shit eventually. And Popsicle. I mean, you have this amazing package, too, there. I mean, you know, including if you're a vinyl fan or a zine fan. The Popsicle thing, dude, if if you're the type of person like me who wants the limited edition thing, then get that vinyl. Get on that shit now. I hate to be like the hyping salesperson, but like... No, do it. The label only pressed up 250 copies, and I doubt they're going to press up more so because you know that's what we said we were going to do is just a limited run so you get you get a book um you know you get a book and a vinyl record and i think it's like 20 25 bucks for the package so that's a pretty good deal a lot and it's a year from now you'll be able to sell the book for 25 25 (laughs) bucks you know you know that's just the way collecting shit goes like stuff goes you know stuff goes up in in value when it's in a limited quantity we're not doing it for that reason we're just doing it because we just don't believe there's more than 250 people out there that want a popsicle record because no one knows who the fuck we are but they're gonna know hear it i think you're gonna dig it so check it out you can even go to like you know, Spotify or Apple music and just listen. I think we've got like four songs out. So check it out. If you like it, you know, it's definitely like, you know, coming from the, like, you know, heavy influence from like replacements and soul asylum and Nirvana and um, cheap trick, you know, definitely bands. I love that, that, that world, you know, but you know, again, we had our own thing. Uh, So check it out. Yeah. Nice. I mean, I mean, as we close this out, I mean, We've, we've touched a lot of ground, but I mean, is, is there anything else we should let them know before we go? Is there anything else we missed? I, th- I mean, dude, honestly, I don't think I've ever covered this much ground in any interview and I've, and I've fucking challenged some podcast hosts that, you know, I'm like, you want to know the story or do you want to know the story? Cause I can give you the abbreviated story and just start the clock at sugar cult. But like, I think it's much more interesting when someone, you know, that stuff you can Google, you know, this is the yeah. stuff that I feel like you're, you're not going to get unless you listen to this, this podcast, you know, exactly. so, we're, um, we're, we're educating people. You're schooling their asses with this right now. Well, I mean, I, I just like, like, I'm interested in this kind of shit. Like I'll listen to a, a podcast of an artist I like, and it's fun when I can learn that kind of stuff. So I'm assuming the kind of people that listen to your show are those types of people oh. too. So yeah, hundred yeah. percent. 
so hopefully you got something out of it. And, you know, like I said, hit me up on Instagram if you have any questions or whatever. Um, you know, I think we covered pretty much, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground and it does give me kind of anxiety when I think about it. I'm like, fuck, I've, I have been <laughs> playing, you know, played in a lot of different configurations of bands and made a lot of music, but I still feel like, I still feel like I haven't really done, you know, shit compared to like, you know, some of the you, people out there, <laughs> you know, I still got a well, long way to go. So I mean, you literally you know, told me, I'm telling you my whole story. I'm like, that's all great. And then I remind myself of the germs and I'm like, <laughs> and then you've got Pat Smear who was yeah. in the fucking germs. And before that was like following around the, you know, runaways and going and, you know, sneaking into Rodney Bingenheimer's club and hanging out with David Bowie. And then like working at a record store for a few, you know, for a few years, just chilling and, because he happened to be friends with this chick named Courtney Love, who had been a punk rocker in the scene early, you know, back in the early days, he ends up getting a phone call or, you know, he ends up looking up Courtney's number. Cause he hears, he's like in the record store and he sees on the TV on like MTV news that like something about Nirvana. And he just like decided to call Courtney Love and find out if Nirvana needed a guitar player or something like that. It's like the, the way he got in Nirvana is so fucking DIY and crazy. Like he was literally just like called, you know, put it out to Courtney Love. And then she she told Kurt Cobain about it. And then he got the number for the record store because I don't think Pat had his own number and called him. And again, it was like Chris Rowe with the Ataris with the Vandals. He like thought it was his friend fucking with him. He's like, no, you're not the guy from Nirvana. And he called him back. He's like, no, it's really me. Like, do you want to be in this band? So he ends up in Nirvana and fucking there, you know, total fucking Cinderella story. He goes from like this, like dude who used to be in the germs that was sitting around, you know, at some record store and um, ends up in Nirvana. And then, you know, sadly Nirvana ends and then ends up in the Foo Fighters and then, uh, you know, and then ends up out of the Foo Fighters and then gets back in the Foo Fighters. And it's like, what a story that guy's had. You know, that's a book I want to read. I want to read. I want Pat Smear to write a book. I mean, to be fair to you, yeah, we can't all be Pat Smear. But, you know, there is only one Pat Smear and he never does interviews either. He He's very. So our buddy, Chris, that, that I told you about that we grew up with, um, you know, who's obviously in the Foo Fighters, the guitar player. He's I mean, he's another one, dude. I could tell you, like, talk about people who love music. What he does in his spare time and he's got a wife and three kids in his spare time. He makes solo records and he kind of got interested in country music and he starts like making legit sounding like Americana kind of country-ish solo records. And he goes out and tours in a van to promote his solo records and doesn't play any Foo Fighters songs whatsoever. You know, doesn't even ask to be billed as Chris from the Foo Fighters and just goes out there and loads his own shit, pulls up at a dive bar, sets up his stuff, plays shows like, he just loves music. That's so rad. I mean, that makes me like that. A, the Foo Fighters have a fucking private jet. You know what I mean? <laughs> and he gets home and just for the sh- just for the hell of it, makes solo records and goes out and, and tours. You know, he's in England right now playing, um, doing it. He and he's doing Dave, it for the love of it. Also, was another fucking great story. You know, he was in Scream and then Nirvana and then you know changes instruments and gets the Foo Fighters. He's on any given night he's out there in the middle of the night like smoking um you know his own doing his own barbecue and then feeding like hundreds of homeless people for yeah free. he just, he just loves to barbecue so he's like i'm gonna make food for people who don't get to eat food that much you know i mean to me these are like 
you, you hear about people like that and it just it just inspires you to just be a radder version of yourself and and you realize like enough of the punk rock kids have grown into the have grown their tentacles into the mainstream and maybe even made some money so it's lovely to see shit like that happening you know yes you know, you get flea from the Chili Peppers, who at one point played in Fear and used to like just be a feral, like fucking practical, practically a runaway kid on Hollywood Boulevard. He he makes it in the Chili Peppers, and he opens up the Silver Lake Music Conservatory, basically a music school for people who don't have a lot of money, and just like teaches kids in LA how to play music. How fucking cool is that? Cool. Like, it's so, so fucking cool. it's it's like the culture of of uh, of rock and roll and punk rock is is super cool because it's just filled with people that that just like kind of pulled something wild off against all odds and then they usually pay it pay it back you know in some way shape or form which is super cool i do a lot of stuff right now i teach at a music college i teach um songwriting and music business and i help a lot of aspiring artists it's just you know it's it's super fun to just like be immersed in this world of music you know Mm -hmm. In every, uh, as a fan, as a musician, as an artist, whatever you want to say, you know, as just be involved in it, you know, that's the, that's, it's a, it's a cool thing. I, I love seeing a guy with a replacements t-shirt on and an Iron Maiden thing hanging on his wall. You know, you know, you love music when, when you don't like draw like denominational lines between different genres. It's just like, you know, this radio bases, show itself. Cars, it's I, all I mean, good. this radio show itself. I mean, we play Sugar Colt next to a replacement song. I don't give a fuck. Like awesome. I'm totally, I'm totally like break those fucking like fuck whatever you think of that. It's like it's all good music. And um, and I'll give you a trivia question right now. Do What's it. The connection between Sugar Cult and the Replacements. Holy shit! Ooh, who produced our first record, Start Static? Wait, was it Matt Wallace? Matt Wallace, who produced. Wait, it was Matt Wallace. Yep. Oh and shit! Produced, Don't tell a soul. Yeah. By the replacements, and he produced both of Paul Westerberg's solo records. I didn't realize. I knew all that. I didn't realize Matt Wallace produced Sugar Cult. I would have fucking asked you that an hour ago. Oh, I would have. <laughs> well, there you go. Crazy. We'll Follow up. <laughs> Holy shit! Okay. So there you go. Well, yeah. with with and that, just, and, and you and you already know that I was punishing Matt Wallace. With just like, tell me replacement oh, stories. Yeah. Tell me, tell me again. You know, so the whole time we were making Start Static, I was just punishing Matt Wallace to, to get him to tell me stories. And the let's just say they do not disappoint. <laughs> like the replacements were the real deal, as it turns out. <laughs> Everything know, I've heard from people alert, with them, the yeah, it's not. We're a fucking rock and roll band. <laughs> yeah, that was not an act of the bands who like it's an act or they put that on. No, that was them. Everything you hear, that was fucking yeah, them. For better or for worse, you know. Read Trouble Boys. Yeah, read, read um, the book. You will find out that yeah. band for good and bad. Like that was not an act or an image put on by a record label. I that know. was and the funny thing is he was telling me stories that were from when he worked on Don't Tell a Soul. So they, that was already like you think they had already like gone through their like craziest years, and that yeah. was like the mellower side of the replacement. Not the case. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I'd come to the studio and they would be, you know, they would basically start drinking at 10 in the morning, and then they would start doing cocaine so that they could stay awake to keep drinking. And then, you know, it, it just, and then they had to do more cocaine in the morning because they had stayed up so late drinking because they had done cocaine to stay up drinking. So it's just like, did, I don't even know if they ever slept. And then he was like, 
I mean, he was like, they were such like working class blue collar types of kids. They would like have an argument and like, you know, we're in the studio. We're like, okay, well, I can see how you feel. Okay, great. I'm going to give you space to feel that way. I understand that that's how you feel. Like we're having these like really like California, you know, mature conversations in the studio. Once in a while, one of us loses our temper. The replacements, no way. He's like, <laughs> they would have an argument and they'd be like, fuck you. And he'd be like, fuck you. And be like, what are you going to do about it? Let's go. And they would just go outside and start fighting. And literally they would have a fist fight over like a bass part or something. It would be like, I should... You know, they would go outside. Let's go. Let's go right now. And they, they'd go out and fight. And whoever won the fight got their way. Like, that's like how that fucking record. So, so now you go back and listen to Don't Tell a Soul. And you're going to go, dude, like some guy fucking lost a tooth for that guitar part. You know? That solo is in there because. Yeah. yeah so he lost he, like, that there solo. Was black eyes, there was fucking chipped teeth. There was bloody knuckles. And I mean, it's just insane. It's so crazy. I mean, I love, I mean, they're all time replay, all time favorite band. Westerberg <laughs> is God. So I love, I love these, uh, I love Such hearing it all. Man, man. Such a great man. We could go on forever, dude. I, I could connect the dots through all this shit forever. Yeah. Actually, um, the studio where Popsicle recorded our record off to a bad start, which is the one we were talking about before. Um, I think right before we recorded that record, Tommy Stinson had been in there making the first um, Friday Night is Killing Me, the first Bass Passion Pop, Pop record. I fucking yeah. love that. That we is my favorite. That in our hometown in Santa Barbara. Yeah, Dude, our that singer is- Keith was like a huge replacements fan, and he had like hung out with a replace. He had all these great stories because, like I said, uh, he was a few years older than me. So he would be like, "Dude, I I got to like party with them at their hotel, and he'd like gone to a bunch of their. He'd gone to like twelve replacement shows or something like that." Shit, cool. that is yeah. that is amazing. Yeah. Dude, I mean, Marco, Marco, we, I got, mean, we we'll, probably got to go. <laughs> yeah, we, we are. So I mean, again, check out the new Popsicle. Go on there, give Marco a uh, follow. Uh, keep, I mean, keep up with it. Again, you got a punk rock museum. You'd be doing that. There's more than enough to stay connected with Marco, and there's enough. Fuck, go back in the back catalog too. There's a lot to get into. Yeah, so uh, check it all out, man. And you know, you can find me on uh, on the Instagram. And then also, I always forget to tell people about this. It's kind of lame, but it's also kind of cool. Is this thing called Cameo, where you can oh, yeah. like, yeah, you can find me on Cameo, and lots of times people will like. Um, you know, ask me to show them how to play a part on a song or just like, you know, I could do the typical thing where I, I give you like, you know, happy birthday to your friend or something like that, which whatever. Some guy asked me to give advice to his kid who wanted to play guitar. And I like, you know, but a uh, lots of times people also will send me music to listen to that they're working on and I'll give you like a, a critique of it. So like, you know, oh, make nice. use of that. It's like 20 bucks or something like that. I think my battery's going to run out on my computer. Dude, we <laughs> pulled it off. We did the we longest were... podcast of all time. We ran out the battery on a fucking MacBook Pro. That's how there, long we went. The, we're fucking pros, man. No, I will. I'm, I'm waiting for you to say the word, dude. I'm not going to stop. I, I, I am. Check it. I mean, again, we got Cameo. We got all the new music, all of it. We're going to go before his battery dies. Uh, <laughs> I'm Anthony Merchant talking to Marco DeSantis. A great fucking time. Ah. Right here on the Power Court Hour. <laughs>